This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, Nubians. Hi. Hey, Nubia. Or, or good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you yes, are in the world. wherever you are, because we know Oz is in here somewhere from the UK. From, from the UK. Well, <laughs> my London, my North South London uh, brother. Uh, hey, That's good right. morning, Dr. Carr. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning, Professor yeah. Hunter. How are you doing? Looking I'm lovely good. and radiant this morning. You got an yeah. early start, huh? Yeah, I took a son. You know, I did my son. I did my little routine, got got refreshed, and we're here now with the Nubians, and I'm really uh, happy. Uh, I've been spending some time in the metaverse, uh, di di diving into that. I had to get one of them Oculus because, you know, they out there creating worlds where we probably are going to be footnotes and sprinkling like salt and pepper. Yes. But we need to create our own world. So I want to shout out Uraeus, who has taken a course to to help us. Ah, that's what's happening. Uraeus yes. is taking the course. Yes, he's take, somebody got to take the course. And then I know there's no people question. in Nubia who know something about virtual reality and AI and all of the things. Because uh, we're not in tech. We're going to be used to, you know, <laughs> uh, create somebody else's uh, wealth and universe. And I'm not here no for question. that. So. No question about it. No question about it. So there's that. And, uh, you know, which is interesting. Also, today is Pele's birthday. So, um, yes. Him. Uh, and I was on your um, on the Howard um, Twitter feed and I noticed that they posted something about a, a celebration of Lucy uh, Slow, who you talked about. Uh, yeah. I believe in office hours and they had Dr. Oh, yeah. uh, not Dr. Uh, Dean Felicia Rashad was up giving tribute as well and i saw some wave things going on but is the blackburn sit-in still happening is there still it, a takeover it most certainly is a blackboard takeover and uh in fact last night the howard uh howard united uh alumni uh which is a new organization it's not an official university affiliated organization but it has a number of members and is growing by leaps and bounds of howard alumni um, friends of Howard, alumni, Howard faculty, staff had a, a wonderful two hour conversation with students who, uh, former students, alum, who participated in student movements as far back as the, the historic 1968 takeover of the administration building. In fact, Ewart Brown, um, who was at the time student body president. I remember we invited Brother Brown to come and speak on the 50th anniversary of the protest in 2008 he came and talked to a smaller group uh but he was there um very interesting brother um in fact um he was the prime minister oh it was bermuda i had to remember yeah man you might have to look it up while i'm talking but anyway in fact in fact let me just look it up right quick because he um yeah, Bermuda. I thought I knew I was right. Uh, anyway, I usually don't look stuff up while we on. So he um he was there, and then from the 1970s and 80s, uh, you had folk like Chris Cathcart and April Silver, um, Damani Keene, Bill Keene, who had been the dean of students at Howard, was also a Howard trustee at one time at one point, and um and more recently had students from the uh, the takeovers and protests from 2018. It's very interesting. Rich dialogue was moderated by Josh Myers, who's on faculty at Howard. And it's very interesting to hear this momentum. A lot of people, you know, are still. Oh, and of course, uh, students who are there now uh, who are still in Blackburn. Uh, I've been over there 
probably now four or five times at different days and different times um from late night to midday just to you know check on the young people offer support you know solidarity and yeah they're not going anywhere <laughs> they're not going anywhere <laughs> oh can't hear you i know so i always say two things can be true so there are young people carrying on going through sports things connecting doing the wave and having their you know bands and celebrations and all of that at the exact same time as there are students that are unhoused and having a bad experience so that's right um, that's right and well i mean and, and it's kind of sad but true we know that movements don't involve everybody and that if everybody who benefited from the movements years later uh, who say they were in participated in the movement were actually there you wouldn't have enough room <laughs> so uh everyone you know this is homecoming week at howard uh, also homecoming week at a number of universities uh, morgan uh, tuskegee so but of course this is uh it's supposed to be a closed campus only student only attending events so you know we saw the young people swag surfing in the bird gym and then that was posted on social media and widely and roundly excoriated uh, then we saw them in the uh, Crampton Auditorium for events, and that was posted on social media and widely excoriated. And then so I'm like, <laughs> y'all need to get the memo. I mean, look, yeah, too, many things can be true. For example, in the case of Lucy Diggs Slow, who we did talk about extensively, and look, encourage you all to look up uh, Lucy Diggs Slow. In fact, a um, uh, sister named Pruitt, P-R-U-I-T-T. -T. In fact, I showed you all her book, and I'll mm -hmm. never be able to get it oh. now. Do it, don't do it. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not getting up because because again, we got we got so much to cover today. And thanks to you, we're gonna do a, a close-ish reading of of a document that's very important and very very timely today. But um, yeah, she um, oh Lord, I wish I could think of her first name. It may come to me, but at any rate, uh, I think the, the the subtitle of the book is a credit to her race. But Lucy Diggs Slow, as we know, and we're going to go into her biography. You know, just know that she was a, a tennis champion. She was first dean of women at Howard. She was a major force. She was one of the founders of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which is one reason why her soror, uh, Dean Rashad, was there yesterday, along with me many members of Alpha Kappa Alpha and uh, many other things. Uh, she was also um, at a time when there weren't there weren't labels like there are now in the same way to describe same gender loving uh people she was uh ann pruitt logan that's right thank you thank you karen that's right that's right she, she found it that's right um you you know she she and her companion who was also an educator a teacher uh lived in the district and when the president of howard university tried to uh force her dean slow to live on campus she said yeah i'm good and uh, stayed in her house with her companion. And uh, very important, it's very important to understand. Now, there was a World War II era building, dormitory, actually, for women, which was built and then transferred to Howard University that for decades uh, was known as Lucy Diggs Slow Hall. And uh, I spent many an evening in the lounge of Lucy Diggs slow hall after classes and after my office hours I would walk down the hill and spend hours in conversation and presentations and extended class conversations with the students who lived in Lucy Diggs slow hall 
In fact, that more than once I missed my train back to Philadelphia. This is the town I'm still living in Philly. And when you miss that 10 o'clock Amtrak going back, the next one's not until 3 a.m. So I'd be looking at my watch like, come on, y'all now. You know, it's 9, it's 9, 9 15. What are we going to do? And, and they would always be a designated driver. And then on a couple of those times, I was like, we're just not going to make it. So I just got my mind right. And uh, we stayed sometime at 11 or midnight. And then I would just make the trek to Union Station and wait till 3 a.m. But it was worth <laughs> but it was worth it because yeah. you, know, can you just pause for a second because I don't know if, if uh people realize the kind of dedication uh because I I'm listening to you. I probably wouldn't do it, so I'm just gonna tell y'all. Sure you would, sure you would. Not all the time. <laughs> no, but you're you're that you're you know, people and I've seen so many people who whose children wanted to go to Howard because of what they've experienced watching you. Um, and I know that anybody that's come through one of your classes, because I've heard and everybody, you know, like that's a special experience and we don't get that just anywhere. So what I was saying is two things can be true. Like at the same time that the horrors that these young people experience are going on, there's still classes that Dr. Grant Carr teaches there. There's still events mm -hmm. going on. There's still swagging and they're still enjoying and but we can't ignore what's happening at Blackburn because in many ways that undermines all of the good things that are, are happening right. at Howard and they can fix it. That's they right. They can fix all of it. So That's we're going right. to challenge yeah. folks to keep on social media, keep the pressure on the administration to do something so that those young people do not have to camp out. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And we talked about this last week and we talked about it during office hours and we'll yep. probably still be talking about it. I know we're going to move now to, 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 uh, to the voice and Pele. I want to, I want to hear what was going through your mind when you thought about no, this. I mean, I, I mentioned Pele in the only book that I, I pinned under my own name. And then I said, he spoke Spanish. So it's a bane of my, you know, it's the little things that you did that were wrong. Learn. It's, it, look, Spanish, Portuguese, and romance yeah. languages. No, nah, you know, it's like, oh, and I can't go back and fix it. So what I'm going to do is rewrite it and put it in Nubia, uh, okay. so put it in narrative so that I can like have that off my chest. Because no I'm question. such a, such a we have, I mean, person. That's why you have editors. It's so funny you say that. It's so funny. I was reading, it, well, all the time, right? But <laughs> something, right. you know what I'm saying? There was something recent. I can't even remember the book, but these academic books, and I tell students this all the time. In fact, I don't tell them, I show them. I'll, I'll, I'll be saying, you know, I'm reading this book, y'all. And I said, now watch this. Here's the University of, fill in the blank, University of Pennsylvania Press, New York University Press, you name. And they got all these copy editors. They got all this money. And I'm, so I'm going to show y'all the, the, the errors in this book. The misspelled names. Martin Delaney with an E. <laughs> D-E-L-A-N-E-Y. -D -E I'm like, how y'all spelling Martin Delaney's name with an E? In other words, who missed this in the copy edit? Because either this was introduced, and you and you know this because obviously, I mean, you know, this is this is one of your gifts and one of your trained skills. You can introduce errors in a text, but I'm saying as as a scholar, there are certain names you should never have misspelled repeatedly in a text. So I'm saying this. I hope this can't. In fact, well, I'm not even going to do. It. I'm going to name some names. Don't nobody mad, but you know. It happens. And so, you know, that's why they pay copy editors or supposed I know. to. I know. But I don't, <laughs> that's why you don't leave that up to anybody. You got to reread your stuff. Um, but I, that was a function of like just ignorance on my part. And, you know, the beauty of being in class is that, you know, when you know more, you do more. When you know that's better, right. you do better. And, you know, we are all at some point coming into our, our knowledge and awakening and different topics. We can't beat ourselves up too bad. You know, a lot of people are like, you know, still frustrated that all of this stuff they didn't know, they weren't taught. And uh, we're, 
as we learn, let's just keep let's just keep encouraging one another. Yeah, so. to, to, you know, rise up and be better. So yeah, we're going to die learning. We're going to be learning every breath. I mean, that's the whole point. You can never know it all. In fact, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And that's why we have to rely on each other. So, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and 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 that's why I think. Um, yeah, that's why I mentioned that investment of time in slow hall spent a lot of uh, nights. In fact, on Sundays, the, the, the Sunday before school starts up until um, up until about four or five years ago, three or four years ago, when Howard uh, gave over its dormitories, many of them to a private management firm. This is where I'm going with this. Um, my friend, Dr. Mark Lee, who used to run Charles Drew Hall, had something called the burning of the fears. And I've talked about that before, I think, where the Sunday before um, school, after all the young men had moved in, um, there were rituals and young women. They had a ritual at the Harriet Tubman Quadrangle, um, Harriet Tubman Hall, Phyllis Wheatley Hall, Prudence Crandall Hall, Sojourner Truth Hall, the four halls together in a quadrangle forming what they call the Quad at Howard. And of course, the Quad is a very familiar name for those who know campuses, college campuses, the dormitories often if they're like that. And the women would dress in white. There's a very powerful ritual at Spelman where they dress in white and they come. Well, the young brothers, uh, Mark created this ritual called the burning of the fears, and they would all come off of the floors of Drew Hall. And to give you a sense, I mean, this is the hall where everybody from Stoley Carmichael, Kwame Ture to Amir Baraka to Jelani Cobb and them, you know, Mark Mason, cats all lived in, in Drew. And it's a rite of passage. And several hundred young men, uh, overwhelmingly of African descent, although not exclusively, uh, the largest group of college men of African descent living in one place outside of a dorm like at Morehouse in the country. And they would come down, these freshmen, and they would march in lines. You see them coming out of the front door and everybody would have their hands on the shoulders of the guy in front of them. They come out, they come out, they come out and they march and they come in a circle and it would be concentric rings. In the middle of that circle was a big bonfire that they had lit. And everybody had uh, a note card or a piece of paper and you know i like note cards so i bring my note cards and then they would have <laughs> alumni speak to them they have a little step team drew hall step team new brothers would perform and you know and a few of us would be around faculty dean of the uh, uh the uh chapel dean richardson bernard richardson and for the years he was president many years uh city Rebo, the 16th president of howard and they would always ask me to come and I would give them a few words not to talk about Charles Drew, this remarkable man named Charles Drew. And I would say a few words and then everybody would write on their paper, slip paper or card, their greatest fear. And don't show it to nobody. Just write it. Everybody read it. OK, here we go. And the lines then would start moving again. And one by one, you drop that fear in the bonfire. And so Mark caught it, the burning of the fear. I haven't done the burning of the fears and. Several years. Uh, universities do institutional memory differently. HBCUs, I found, are inexplicably, indefensibly, and ridiculously um, neglectful of institutional memory. And so every Sunday before school starts in the last few years, I've regretted the fact that they don't have the burning of the fears anymore. And I tried to reach out our first couple of years and after that I said, you know what, we'll just wait. Because in the words of James Cleveland, this too 
will pass. <laughs> and then we'll come back with the burning of fears. But I'm raising that because all after I, after they started doing the burning of the fears, the young brothers who were freshmen who weren't in Drew and then upper class people who were in George Washington Carver Hall wanted to have a ritual. So me and Mark, after the burning of the fears, would go over to Carver and in their day room, which was downstairs, they would all gather and we would do a libation. Well, we can't do libation in Carver Hall anymore and we can't have any meetings in the, lob in the uh, lounge of Lucy Diggs Slow Hall anymore. Well, I guess not without asking the company that manages those two condominium buildings because <laughs> they have been, you know, transferred through long-term land lease. Howard still owns the, the land underneath them, but the buildings are now condominiums. And so yesterday I looked at the Lucy Diggs slow street naming. It was a little bittersweet for me because I know I won't be going back in Lucy Diggs slow again mm. with Howard students. They don't live there no more. And, uh, you know, I, I don't go, I won't go back in Carver Hall to pour libation with, with Mark because, you know, Mark's not a Howard anymore. And uh, in Carver Hall is condominiums now. In fact, they, they are marketed, if you go online, as the Carver Slow or the Slow Carver condominiums. It's like, so gentrification has washed over that particular little bit of Northwest Washington. And I'm reminded of Living Color, Vernon Reed and them, you know, uh, you can tear a building down, but you can't erase a memory. Yeah, so they didn't tear the buildings down, but that's not your, you can't come in here no more unless you're paying an extravagant amount of money. So when I think about those young people in tents outside Blackburn and the ones inside Blackburn, and I think about their, their, their classmates who were swag surfing and going to Crampton. Yes, all these things can be true at the same time, but don't forget that when social movements occur, everyone will benefit regardless of how few people sacrifice. That was one of the messages last night that we heard. And if you have institutional memory, one of the things we're doing, and, and again, as I end with this, you know, I'm very grateful. Very, I mean, I can't tell you how grateful I am, uh, Professor Hunter. And I'm grateful to everyone who is in Nubia, everyone in narrative, and you can't get to Nubia unless you are in narrative, people saying, you know, how do I, uh, I didn't get my registration approved. Well, you're not in narrative yet. You got to get narrative. I, I'm very grateful because in these moments, it is, we are reminded that the institutions that we build, that we control, are the places where we can build the worlds we want to live in. And that if we don't have full control of the institutions, decisions can be made that Perhaps even those who, and I, I don't question anyone's motives in any of our HBCUs. I don't question anyone's motives. I think we all want ultimately the same thing for our young people and for ourselves, for our communities and our families. But we will have respectful, certainly, sometimes deeply uncomfortable, but vociferous and, you know, very, 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 very deeply conflicting ideas and differences and debates about how to get there. And it's very difficult, as I tell my students, and I said I was gonna end, so that's when I, there's a reason why I did not pursue an administrative track in higher education, trying to become a dean or a provost or a president or a vice president, no, I'm a teacher. I'm a classroom teacher and I never want to get too far away from that classroom because 
that's not my aspiration. My aspiration is to be in a circle with people thinking through things and building a world we want to live in, building on the momentum of those who came before us. So, so let's talk a little bit about this HBCU professor who lost his job for the, and came back to the place he had started in 1909 and, and uh, Du Bois. Du Bois was on your mind, huh? Yeah, he's on my he's on my chest too. I see, I see the top of the head. Look at him. There he is. All right. Look at right, him. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. You got Du Bois close. Yes, oh, I have him close to my close to my areas. Um close to your to your areas, close to the bosom. This is the origin of humanity. You yeah. got Du Bois right there. Wait, wait, should we talk about Pele? Should we mention Pele first? We mentioned him. I mean, I don't know what your your um experience is. I just I brought him up in my book to say, you know, he's not speaking an African tongue. But right. he's speaking, you know, the, and but the world celebrated him. And I now that I know more, I'm wondering, you know, they curated him for us because I'm sure that there were other footballers, people who used their feet to kick a, a ball down a field into a net uh, who had a lot of melanin. Maybe he was the greatest. Maybe he was Jackie Robinson. I don't know. Um, I know they're throwing bananas at black people now oh. on soccer fields throughout the world. I know that. Uh, black people have to deal with all manner of insult now on the field. So I'm just, you know, curious. I didn't know if you had a Pele uh, entree. So no, we didn't me, really talk me, about tell it. Tell me when you, you said it was your first book. My first only, so I, I've done 34 plus books. Uh, with, yes. With, 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 as a, as a collaborator, as a quote Let, unquote ghostwriter, you know, uh, some books I got my name on it. Some books, books I do not, <laughs> but this was a book that I wrote that was, um, I, and I was being cheeky, but it hurt me because I was like, you know, stop being niggardly, you know, because this word kept coming up. I was on the editorial board at the Daily News and people were losing their jobs using the, the word that was, you know, 13th century Chaucer first used it and it meant stingy. So I was yeah. like, let me let me play with this word. Yes. Black people were so mad at me, uh, <laughs> like I'm not buying a book with that name on it. And I was like. Ah, the whole point is I want us to look it up. I give you the definition and I want us to have a discussion about anyway. Yes. If I had to do it over again, I would name it something different. You know, but that's me being stubborn and like I'm you gonna you gonna learn this word. Um, no question. <laughs> but learn uh, word. you know, it was you know, it was kind of an exploration into how we can and, and really a nod to Nanny Hallaby Burroughs, who I had just discovered. Um, yes. and uh, I just wanted and so I I reprint her 12 things a Negro must do. And oh, it, did you? Yeah, and I give, you know, I give a little back and forth, you know. So it was just kind of a, a nod to her more than anything, a celebration of what she saw um, that we, you know, were lacking in the things that we could do. And it's kind of been my clarion call moving forward. You know, all of the things that we can do, what are possible, because she saw it. Um, but I know so much more now, so it, it's going to look different when I posted in in narrative. Yes. Uh, but yeah. Nanny Helen Burroughs too. I was looking over here. There's a new book of her writings that just came out. The young sister edited it. And I have a few of the pub, her, the publication from her organization. I wish I could, mm, I, I moved it though, doggone it. But yeah, so Nanny Helen Burroughs was the was the inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. You know, and I shared some things that my daddy taught me and the things that I watched, Um, you know, that I carried forward and just kind of looking at us, you know, and uh, in, in how, you know, we, we're always not we, all of us, but you know, the 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 they want us to look to somebody to save us, you know, and mm -hmm. you know, um, but we 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 have all of the answers because we we, we've had all of the answers because we we are the the beginning and the end of this thing. So that's right. 
one so, so Pele made it into the uh, into the text as an example. Right. Of somebody who, you know, everyone celebrates, but he's not speaking a tongue that, you know, that he, you know, that was native to him. He's speaking another language. That's right. um, just like, you know, we're speaking English right now, which you remind us quite frequently. So, you know, that was it. But no, that's that's beautiful. I mean, you know, Pele, well, I guess we see we we are not young enough not to have known the name Pele, although we wouldn't have. We, we obviously didn't see him in his prime. Um, and there's always the debate. I mean, you know, my nephew Ellington playing soccer, he's overseas now playing soccer. Come on, come on, Ellington. Yeah, Ellington doing his thing. I mean, you know, that's my sister and brother in law's son over there doing his thing. You know, his daddy played in the NFL, he was a a defensive back for years with the Steelers and the Falcons. And uh, his his little sister's a track star, they both top scholars because you know how they taken after their parents. But uh, who met at Tennessee State, you know, that's HBCU. I'm glad to see Eddie George winning some games down there for the big blue. But uh, but but he's over there because that's his dream and he wants to pursue it. And so we support him. He applied to and got into every college he applied to. He wanted to come to Howard, of course. And I said, yeah, um, we got you. So but he but, but he, de- he he deferred. He's over there. This would have been his sophomore year at Howard. But he's over there playing, playing football, as they call it. And. You know, because of that, you know, I it was one of the animating thing. He just turned 19. In fact, it, it caused me to do a little bit deeper dive in the game. And there have been a number of books, obviously, as we know, written about Pele, um, written about the brother. And so uh, Edison Arantes do Nascimento, named for Thomas Edison, which is crazy. <laughs> but what? <you> know, <laughs> yeah, Edison, that's his first name, that's his real first name. In fact, the name Pele is not clear at all. Where it comes from, yeah, is in none of his names, right? It's got like four or five names, names. And, and he says at least it's attested to him that he he didn't like the name the nickname when he first got it. Hmm. It's, like, it's almost like Jackie, you know how? Oh yeah, how how uh, social social uh, social structure people bestow names. It's probably a pejorative. It's probably something probably. like like Piccaninny or something. Probably because Dico Dico was one of the names that, that he had as a child, a little nickname, but. But like you said, this 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 single name thing. Do you know how we get to that? I mean, Maradona, the hand of God, so to speak, or Ronaldo, or Neymar, or Messi. You know, why do they call these stars by one name in football? Do you have any sense? I have no idea. Maybe maybe it makes it easier to, to cheer. So, you know, you know what? Maybe yeah, maybe function of that. Yeah, because it is truly a global game. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, and, and of course, the legends abound about Pele. I mean, did he score over a thousand goals? And they, nah, they, you know, they said, well, we, we, they got over 700 that they say he scored in official games. Clearly the master of his time and the master of any time. I mean, in some ways, maybe like a Will Chamberlain, you you know, could Will, could Will so compete today? Come on, y'all. Don't ask no stupid questions. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, could LeBron have competed back then? Come on, don't ask no stupid questions. <laughs> That's just a stupid question. So Pele would have been great in any age. I mean, by the metrics of his time. I mean, three the only three-time World Cup winner. And you know, I mean, so but but all that haven't been said. And then and then of course, I do you you be too young to remember, but you may have written about a new people or interview. When he when they when they try to create that team, they create that team called the New York Cosmos. There's an interesting book on it and a documentary film on it. Where it was like the the disco era in New York, it was like the and Pele was 
was signed to come. Of course, by then he's old. Yeah, I think he was in his late forties. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but but Pele, I mean, it was like, I mean, those kind of people though that transcend sports, and of course he's black, he's Afro Brazilian, and so a hero like that who played primarily in Brazil and Latin America, one of the one of the knocks they try to knock him, so he didn't play in the Europe Europe European leagues. Well, the European leagues compared to where he was playing were trash. Let's be clear. And if you want to get real cute about it, who's in the European leagues now for you to throw bananas at? The children of Africa <laughs> and Latin America. So don't get cute, you know, because he went up there playing Manchester United. Because when they did play, I think they didn't call it the English Cup. They didn't call it the European. They called it the World Cup. He beat ass three times. Let's be clear. And humiliated people. In fact, when he did play in Europe, the players would often say, you know, I went out there trying to think, compete against this man who they said was the greatest. And I left the field thinking this guy was born on a different planet than the rest of us. I mean, so just go and look at what the European players said when they played Pele. But um, yeah, happy birthday, Pele, 81 today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, was, he was in his late 30s during that. Um, late 30s. When cosmos. He was at yeah. the cosmos. Okay. Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, it's inter- interesting. I mean, you know, go for the money. And so. But I will say this, I, I I do have a a little bit of a Pele story. In 2007, I guess it was, we were in South Africa and um, it was July, wintertime in South Africa. And we had um, myself, Dr. Dana Williams, the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard. We started going to South Africa with students. And come to think of it, I'm trying to think who was on that trip. Josh was on that trip. Myers, who's a professor at Howard now. Uh, at least three. Uh, Jahan. I'm just trying to think of the number of lawyers who are now lawyers who wanted. They were all undergraduates. Um, at least one trained librarian who is a children's librarian, also a scholar. Um, I just think, anyway, Jamina States of Indianapolis, Mississippi by way of Indianapolis. All those young people, anyway, I love those kids. And, um, I was, we had class every day. We stayed on the campus, University of Cape Town. We were in the dorms and I get up, go to get the newspapers. And then, you know, I come down and he, as I always have said before, I can't do this ritual anymore because the young people at UCT uh, said roads must fall and got rid of the Cecil Rhodes statue. But I get up before dawn and walk down to Rhonda Bosch Road to get the newspapers, drink coffee and sit and talk with the cats in the coffee shop. But on the way, I would pass the Cecil Rhodes statue and make sure that I had a you know, a good drink of water that morning so I could spit on it. And because uh, University of Cape Town sits at the foot of Table Mountain, all that was Cecil Rhodes private property. And so at any rate, can't spit on it no more because the students said, you know, roads must fall and they got rid of that statue. Too bad. Can't spit on it no more. But <laughs> one morning I was down there reading the paper, you know, reading the paper, talking to cats. We coming in he and drinking that strong coffee. Together. And I was like, oh, oh, wow. They're going to have a soccer match in the big stadium in Cape Town. Because remember, they, they had the World Cup there in 2010. This is 2007, July 20, 2007. And I saw this big advertisement. Nelson Mandela's 90th birthday. They're going to do 90 minutes for Mandela. It's going to be a, a team of people from uh, players from Africa, all over Africa, against the world. So this would be cool to go to. And it says, special appearance, Pele. Pele! Pele going to be there? Oh, man, we got to go. So that day in class, I said, hey, y'all, we going to the Africa versus the world match in the States. So we got the tickets, and we are, we all down there. 
and Pele comes out in all white linen. I mean, this thing, Pele is so cool, right? We up in the stands, everybody cheering, Pele, Pele. And they roll the soccer ball out, and he kicks the soccer ball. Everybody cheers, and he leaves the thing, and then they start the match. So I can say at least I saw Pele kick the soccer ball <laughs> in South Africa, Nelson Mandela, eight, uh, 90th birthday. I'm like, but he was so cool. Even from, I mean, you see him on the screen, this white linen joint, the shirt, you know, I'm old cats. Be I'm like, Look at Pele running around on the stage. Oh, come on, man. So, Jare pointed out when people get elevated to a certain status, and I don't know why we didn't kick into that. Uh, we we reduced them to one name, you mm-hmm. know. So MJ, you know, Shane or Prince, you LeBron, know, no question. Liberace. Sorry. Liberace. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I, I but it's interesting though. I mean, in terms of football. Um, uh, yeah, I guess we call it football. I mean, again, American football, but uh, and soccer, but it is truly a global game. And when they call it the beautiful game, you know, we have been socialized in this social structure that we're in. The U.S. for those of us who are in the United States, of course, uh, soccer is boring. Nobody's scoring. Yeah, slow down. It's a different way of knowing at play there. It's a different cultural meaning making at play there. It's the dance. And if you and if you if you tune to the way African people move through the world, our music, our dance, as different as they can be from each other, there is a similarity that binds us. You will find that dance in everything we play, which is why the social structure attempts to prevent uprisings. There's a lot of maroonage at play in the way we play. So we play football, we don't just catch the football, we're gonna do a little dance. We're going to have some style in how we run our roots. When we get there, we're going to do a little celebration. Here comes the social structure. Flag, flag, flag. This is a clashing way of knowing. This is a clashing cultural meaning making. You understand? It's, and so, but when you watch soccer, it's all about the dance. It's the beautiful game. The score was one to nothing. Hey, I watched some for 90 minutes and went, but did you see, you, you, you look at the dance. Look at the way they're moving down the field. And it took me watching my nephew play. He came up here for a tryout and, you know, for Howard. And I'm out there watching him. I'm like, this is just beautiful. You know, the angle of a pass. You got to hit the right line and you hit it. And then you think about it. Well, hell, that's this kid in Carolina and everybody that came before him. Right? LaMelo Ball. and I mean, that's what they do. That's what we do. This ain't the uh, James Naismith stomp your feet like you're trying to destroy the floor and come up here with the ball, the chest pass. What is that? That's that old brutal ass thing. The same way y'all came with Red Rover and football. I try to take somebody. No, you come. It's like, oh, it's the same thing in soccer. In other words, so of course it captures the imagination. It's a dance because you have to ask yourself. In fact, I'll give you an example completely unrelated, but to make the point, there is a movie that you can probably find it on YouTube. In fact, because these are the kind of movies that don't people don't monetize, but now that black is in, they may go snatch it off and monetize it. It starred Richard Roundtree from Shaft. And I think it was Peter O'Toole played the role of uh, Robinson Crusoe. But talk about social structure and governance structure. And I don't know who wrote the script. I had to go back and research and look. And uh, which is tragic because I was looking for something else and found something. I said, oh, we could have used this the other day. But anyway, the name of the movie is Man Friday. So we were all forced to read Robinson Crusoe as children. But the premise of the film is what 
if the Robinson Crusoe story was told through the eyes of the of the man that Robinson Crusoe labeled Friday. So Friday, not his name, but you don't know his name. I will call you Friday. Okay, that's the social structure, naming shit. You know, I'm on the island. I don't know nothing about this place, but I'm going to start naming shit and keeping days of the week. I met you. I think it's Friday. Your name Friday. Fine. But the whole film shows Roundtree and O'Toole in this. Really, it's about. It's almost like a clash of civilizations discussion. And I won't go into the plot. I mean, y'all can follow it. Just know, for example, that, you know, at key moments when Round, uh, when, uh, when O'Toole, I think it was Peter O'Toole, when, when Robinson Crusoe mm-hmm. goes to sleep, it is Peter O'Toole. Cool. Yeah. Then, ah, Adrian Mitchell. Thank you. Okay. 1973 play that's interesting he goes to sleep richard roundtree the friday character leaves where they are and goes back where to his village and these elders and children and nice people sitting around what do you do today well today he built a like he's like coming back telling them how crazy this white dude is and so one day they're going to do a robinson crusoe decides he's going to teach friday competition so he said, we're going to have a race. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're going to start here and then we're going to run there. So Friday says, okay. So he says, Robinson Crusoe, ready? Yes, go. So Robinson Crusoe takes off running. Friday is jogging like this, jogging up and down without moving. Crusoe looks back, what are you doing? He said, I'm racing. He said, no, no, the goal is to beat me. The goal is to be in front of me. He said, oh, well, I thought the goal was exercise. (laughs) Understand. (laughs) Understand that is a different way of knowing. Sports is for exercise. Okay, so why are you invested your whole life in getting two to my one? Or knocking me over on the way to getting the two to the one. I thought we was for exercise. When you watch soccer, when you're like, I don't know what about It's beautiful. Look at them. They're dancing. Yeah, but how is it too slow? Is it slow? They running all the time. What are you talking about? Is it slow? You just can't stand. You want to see somebody get one over nothing or 10 over nine. And so it was just very innocent in terms of ways. So I'd encourage y'all, if y'all get a chance, watch Man Friday. I won't give away the plot, but just imagine what would happen if you had somebody with that Western way of knowing full up against a kind of not just African, but in many ways, indigenous cultures of the world way of knowing in deep engagement with each other. Which one of those ways of knowing do you think is going to ultimately make the most sense? We'll just leave it at that. I'll go find man Friday. So. All right. Pele, yes. So, so you got Du Bois on your shirt. What, what, yeah. what, was, on, what was your mind? Well, I mean, I, you know, on this day in 1947, hmm. uh, Du Bois went to the UN. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about where we are right now, voting yes. rights. You know, there's a, now the Supreme Court is going to be hearing a, a, a what will probably overturn Roe v. Wade. Yes. Uh, that came down uh, this week. And I'm like, you know, they got the January 6th hearings, which probably will not uh, end up uh, doing anything. And this democracy that we're in right now is, is probably going to crumble. But I, I found it interesting that Du Bois went to the UN, to the United Nations, and um, I knew you would know something. So I just like, what, okay. tell us about on this day. Well, again, I, I, every, every week, I, I and you know, everybody who's in this room, um, you know, my gratitude is boundless in part because 
we have far too place too few places where we do this and that is think about texts think about thoughts and ideas and events so that we can draw from them and improve the society we live in one of the um one of the i think unanticipated consequences at least it's been my experience having participated in student movements and we talked about this during office hour so i won't refer to it if y'all want to go and, and look in nubia at the recording we had a long conversation about this the other night we talked a little bit about it last week in class here one of the unintended consequences i think of student movements like takeovers student building takeovers for example is that when you find yourself under siege the things particularly talking about students that's what i'm talking about now students hwcus or uh, hpcus as i call them sometimes historically plantation college universities hbcus whatever and they they prop they they more most often occur at white schools as we talked about but they happen a lot of black ones too you find that once you're in that space particularly if you're in a movement where you can't just come and go i'll never forget chad bozeman the year of the howard student takeover in 2018 he was the commencement speaker and i never forget him saying when we went and occupied because they occupied the building in fact, in fact, and that's the Chadwick Boseman School of Fine Arts. But Chad Boseman was one of the students who protested the, the merger of the School of Fine Arts with the College of Arts and Sciences. And they occupied the administration building. And, and, and Brother Boseman was like, man, I remember when we took over the building. We couldn't leave. He said, y'all done figured out a way where y'all leave, take showers, go to classes, come back. He said, when we got in there, they closed them doors. We was in there. He said, we was lucky if we got a slice of pizza. Y'all getting food delivered. I mean, and there's a new era in terms of protest. Like these young people at Blackburn. When I was leaving one night, late one night. I went over after my law school class. This is like maybe 11 o'clock. Just to check on the young people. They got like 30, 40 tents out there. As I'm leaving, there's this delegation of food coming in. I'm like, look, they got tables stacked high with medical supplies and toiletries. And they got a station over here. I'm like, look at this. And people just constantly bring stuff. Chad Bowman, like when they closed them doors on us, we was in there. <laughs> and everybody started laughing. It's, it's, but, but I'm saying that to say once you're in that kind of space, and I saw this even, you know, over here at Blackburn. The thing you came to school to do is, is intensified in some ways. They were in the tent. You could see the glow of the laptops. They working. You look in Blackburn, they in there sitting in circles where they reading, they discussing. And I'm saying, this is what you came here to do. Now, yes, you protest in the conditions. There's housing issues. There's infrastructure issues. There's wireless issues. There are issues ranging from not paying adjuncts to all the way on the other end. When you start talking about a uh, housing crisis, not because Howard doesn't have beds, but because some people can't afford to come here and the rents in D.C. are ridiculous. I mean, it goes soup to nuts. It's across the range. But in this moment of protest, it has stripped away the things except the thing you came here to do in some ways. And I'm saying I'm grateful for this space because when we think about somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois, we know the name, we know some of the bio, we've certainly covered him several times in, uh, in narrative and you know, in class and we need to continue to come back. But in a moment like this, when you remind us that it was uh, October the 23rd, 1947, same year that Jack Robinson uh, integrated white, well, officially integrated 
white major league baseball. And I say officially because if you wanted to play white major league baseball before that, they ain't let no Negroes. So you could say you were an Indian or something like that. They, they had they had some black people. In fact, before they made the rule excluding people of African descent from major league baseball, you go back and look at um a brother named Moses Fleetwood Walker, Fleet Walker, who was a very important figure, late 19th century. In fact, the near the origins of American baseball. But at any rate, Robinson, that same year, 1947, Du Bois, and his crew, we're going to talk about his crew too, issues something called an appeal to the world. This is a document that he and five other cats put together from the, and, uh, you know, this being uh, in class and this being narrative in Nubia, your Professor Hunter has assembled a crack team of uh, researchers and scholars and young trainees uh, who will share the link. So if you all look on social media, you'll see the link to the documents we're going to talk about today. But the, the beautiful thing about it, the reason why I stop here and say thank you is because, you know, reading a text never gets old. But in the society we live in, we extract information on our way to something else instead of just sitting with the information. Not only say information, sitting with the text, spoken text, read text. And what you did for me in reminding me of that date is allow me to go back and reread something and you know how you read stuff or you listen to somebody say something and you say man i don't know why i haven't been acting accordingly every time you hear it, it's like yeah oh yeah why am i we so anyway we're going to talk about a little bit of that today because you're right everything going on there was a um let me see here because i usually put the papers as i read them and i mark something and i want to talk about it um oh yeah here are a couple here are a couple of things as you say this critical race theory mess and i was on for about a 10 minute segment last night on uh black news channel uh kelly wright asked me and bob uh woodson robert woodson i don't want to say the conservative the black conservative oh the, you know the elder who's typically affiliated with the conservatives uh so to speak and he said, you know, I won't call it critical race theory. I call it critical race, racist theory. Okay. And what do you think, Daddy Carr? Well, I say, you know, we just heard Brother Woodson talk about, you know, black people achieving in this country despite the odds. And, you know, we don't need to be dividing America. And we need to be telling you, we, we, we achieve despite the odds. I said, well, that's exactly what critical race theory. He's just giving us an example of critical race theory. Uh, another word for the odds is how race operates in the society. So when you say we achieve despite the odds, what you're saying is we we achieve despite structural racism, right? And of course, he's a little frustrated, but you should be frustrated because you know you're running a dog and pony show. You know that you've built your entire career in writing, talking about race in a counterintuitive way. But the fact that you have done that is evidence of what critical race theory is about, which is studying how race impacts the formations in this society now and i told him that last night i'm somebody who has studied critical race theory when i was in law school somebody who teaches elements of it now at a law school at an hbcu um i'm very much aware that there ain't nobody teaching critical race theory k-12 we've talked about that too so there's no need to get into that but how, how it ties to what we're doing now with du bois this coming week you know every week for us all of us is always busy but you know, as an election in Virginia, and I was reading the papers. This is from the Wall Street Journal. 
Uh, this is from yesterday's Wall Street Journal. Kim Strassel, McAuliffe's gift to the GOP. Democrats suddenly looking at Virginia with a whole new kind of unhappy. They're long worried the state's coming election will show voter dissatisfaction with Democrats. They now, they're now concerned that Terry McAuliffe's stumbling gubernatorial campaign has gift wrapped the GOP a winning issue for 2022. And they're talking about this guy, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican uh, nominee for governor. And of course, he has stayed away from immigration. So you don't hear all that MS-13, blah, blah, blah. Can't demonize them. Too many don't vote. And he's looking for the Spanish-speaking vote, which if you read a, a rag like the Washington Times, they claim he's got anywhere from 30 to 50% of the, 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 the Spanish-speaking vote. I'll call it Latino or Hispanic, whatever. But what she's writing here, and what you see is that what he has seized on is this McAuliffe wants to take the choice of what your child is taught away from you. And of course, they've seized on this CRT, as we've talked about. Can't spell it, don't know what it is, don't need to know what it is, because the letters CRT mean the N-word. The letters CRT mean radical Islamic terrorists. The letters CRT mean socialism and Marxism. You know, in other words, these are just proxies in a political war. But now, and you know, I was reading this the other day, it's very interesting to look at this, and then Titus to the Boys in a second, you know, Ballotpedia, you know, Ballotpedia has been for the last decade or so tracking uh elections and they just a database you know who's running against who what are the parties you know who who won the last election and according to the ballotopedia the most number of challenges to elected school board seats since they've been tracking school board elections they they enumerated at least the article i read and then went back and checked ballotopedia over 200 uh um over 200 seats in various school boards there have there are no fewer than over 80 recall recall not letting people serve their turn recall elections taking place in school boards because now what the white nationalists have done is they've decided to start attacking these school boards it was the anti-mask stuff and it was the you know, vaccine stuff and now it's the you won't teach my child crt well what is crt you know, you want to teach that everybody's racist and you want white children to feel bad. And then, of course, we saw Dr. Rice jump in, Condi Rice. Was it The View? Professor, I don't know. Did y'all talk about that this week? Of I'm course, sure. of course, of course. Of course, you did. What did y'all, what was the conversation? Tell, help us with that. <laughs> Look, I see that look on your face. <laughs> you know, um, Americans just want to get back to the kitchen table issues they don't want to deal with all of that we just want to move forward and get back to building this country putting people back to work child and, and shout out to sunny hostin uh, i heard sunny got with her but she kept trying to over talk uh, yeah and, and, yeah but just uh, you, 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 as if sunny doesn't have a whole ass law degree and isn't brilliant Ooh. like please Ooh. please lady you live in a in a glass ivory tower where where you've been um coddled and protected and you've been the pet of of not one not two but a bunch of administrations and um you know all right i'm gonna say less because i'm i'm gonna get into the area of being really really disrespectful no, no, uh, but no, no, i think some people mean, sh you know uh yeah, she's a no I, I don't think i can be respectful uh, I have yes, very strong feelings. I know I have very strong feelings about this. You, you know, you know, it's so funny. I, I take, you know, oh my God. Was it that same trip? Was it that same trip? 
No, no. It was the first time we went to South Africa. This may have been around 2004. It's the first study abroad, Howard's College of Arts and Sciences. We pioneered that. Now, of course, everybody going everywhere. But I'll never forget the great James Donaldson, who was now ancestor, was a dean at the time. You know, I was I had been at Howard three years. So they were like, you know, we want a faculty member to go overseas with these young people. And so they started asking the kids, who y'all want? Said, we want Dr. Carr. <laughs> I live in Philadelphia, y'all. And my and I'm with my freedom school kids in some time. So if I'm going, we got to figure this out, you know, because I don't, you know. Anyway, I listened to them kids and we was like seven or eight of us went there first. Anyway, there was this young lady. I won't name her now. She's a brilliant young sister from Louisiana, country hood, you know, every morning. Cause I'm living in, I stay in the dorm. I don't look for the faculty housing and wherever y'all stand, I'm staying. You know what I'm saying? So, and you know, ain't got no heaters in South Africa. They give you a space heater because wintertime for them is like maybe it'd be 40 to 45 degrees at night. Then in the daytime, it's right. So at night it get a little chilly. They don't, they, they don't handle central heat. <laughs> don't. So you have our space heaters. They up all night talking, whatever. I'm in the room. I get up in the morning cause I'm getting up early. I come back with the newspapers, whatever. And this child is in the shower down the hall, and the hall is long. It's Koya doing. I mean, you know, you can't see nobody, but you can hear her every morning in the shower. I'm focused. I'm soaking wet. Shake it like a shot. Shake, shake it like a shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know who's up. So and so is up. Okay, everybody gonna get up now. Cause shake it like a salt shake. He's bowling. Now, this child got a law degree now. She probably going to end up, if she, if she ends up on Supreme Court, I'm going to tell that story in a mask and then, because brilliant. I'm saying, that, but you know, the, the, the genius of our people, you know what I'm saying? The duality it's, that we carry. Oh, my God. Stuff. I love it. The, or even the multiplicity. It ain't just two. No, that's I mean, you that's got true. one that's in the, Anyway, I went the whole story to say one night we sitting in the cafeteria talking. And in the winter break, it's like the winter break here. You have one dorm open which is where we would stay and who was in the dorm were students from out of the country but out of the country also means other african countries they were kids in zimbabwe kids from Botswana, kids from lesotho who couldn't go home didn't have to make so they would be so we would just be sitting in there being black i mean it was just fascinating to listen to these young people arguing debating agreeing so one night we talking and it came around to Condoleezza rice this child said, I get my hair fixed the same place Kylie Rice get her hair fixed because she kept a perm. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, you can never predict. I'm listening to her. And she said, she okay. She black. She said, she don't act like that, which y'all see in public. She be in there with the rest of us. getting in there talking about And I thought to myself, she is from Birmingham. I mean, what makes yeah. it so that you have to do this other thing in front of these other people. You know what I'm saying? And it just, it was just a pain, it was a painful, but also very poignant reminder that black people know have good sense. You, you performing. I don't even know if you believe all what you say. Which is, which is where the disrespect comes in because no, your performance <laughs> keeps some of us in bondage. Your performance keeps us all from being free because you're free and you got the money and you, you're the pet, you know, but the rest of us, the things you're saying are hurtful hurtful so this, yeah right. so i have a lot of disdain for this woman to do that um well, well i mean but 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 it's but it's okay well i put it this way and this is where we, the voice is gonna come in again all this gonna come crashing with the voice and this is why when you all get this behold the land and appeal to the world this appeal to the world was the thing that he put out and i dropped the link in the uh chat oh, you did. For, for beautiful the beautiful yes y'all because again if many of du bois's papers 
are housed at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. In fact, they've named their library for them, the W.B. Du Bois Library. And many of them are digitized and online under the uh, the rubric credo, C-R-E-D-O, credo. That is the famous uh, statement that Du Bois made of his philosophy of life in the 1940s. When he said, for example, I believe that war is murder. In fact, when Colin Powell made transition, I tweeted W.E.B. Du Bois said war is murder. Nevertheless, you know, may Colin Powell rise like rock. Listen, your soul, brother, you know, but let's be very clear about that. That's very different than being a killer. You were a trained killer. And never forget what W.E.B. Du Bois and so many others said after World War II. 1948 credo. War is murder. You're killing people. And it doesn't matter that you want to get more black generals in the killing game or have equity in the killing game or defend people, you know, who have their own humanity within that structure, uh, bemoaned or, or, or demeaned, rather. It, it's still killing. And I heard Andrew Young the other night, Roland Martin interviewed him, Roland interviewed him, and Andy Young was like, you know, when I was mayor of Atlanta, uh, 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 Colin Powell was over this region, including Fort Benning. He called me one day and said, you need to come out here and uh, see us. And so he went out there and he's talking about how, how he had all these black generals. Yeah, Fort Benning, Georgia. They had something there called the School for the Americas. That's where they trained the people they sent to, to enact coup d'etats in places like Haiti. That's where they sent people to go and take over militaries and, and get staffed with guns in places like Panama and Dominican Republic. Yeah, Andy, with all due respect, Elder, and there's a lot of respect there, let's be very clear. You're talking to a trained killer. In fact, an attack dog, a dignified one, a one who knew he was black, a one who was deeply culturally grounded. We won't get into that because we talked about it in office hours. And those of you in Nubia know if you're not in Nubia, come on, join narrative, get in Nubia. We had this long conversation Monday on office hours. But the point is this that I'm making, about to make. Conley's Rice is in that, that milieu. You've thrown all in with this nation state. And that's fine for you. But what you don't get is a past to uh, not be critiqued, whether it be sitting in the beauty shop, getting your hair pressed or straightened or whatever, or as you say, here. But it isn't a matter of, for me anyway, disrespect. It's a matter of respect. We respect ourselves enough not to sugarcoat this. And this is what got Bois in trouble all the time. And again, so I say this week coming up, um, I thought about it because with all these this critical race theory coming up, and you all saw, I don't know if you saw on Thursday, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, the weak as water. No, water is very strong. In fact, Fela Kuti said water got no enemy. Water hey, ain't got no enemy. Water is doing weak as uh, Kool-Aid with no sugar in it. Uh, uh, Merrick Garland waffling before the House Judiciary Committee because school board people have been reaching out to the federal government and said, we might need some, some federal law enforcement in here because these people showing up to these school board meetings going off. They can't spell CRT, but I'm not sure. Some of them don't have weapons. In fact, I bet most, many of them do. I mean, they in there yelling at people's faces, fighting. They can't tell you what they want. They just know that they don't want you. And so in Virginia, this gubernatorial candidate is trying to ride that into the state house. And, you know, Terry McAuliffe makes an easy, soft target. You know, he a little, he little, he little slick, too slick for my taste. But I mean, the point is this, though, that is, is going on. It's been going on and it's building momentum because we know that CRT equals 2022-2024. It ain't got nothing to do with nothing substantive. We talked about that before. But in this upcoming week, I'm really looking forward to Tuesday night. Um, 
my friends at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, um, Kinshasa Conwell, Kinshasa Holman Conwell, my, my good friend, uh, has co-edited with Paul uh, Gardulo, my friend Paul Gardulo, uh, a reconstruction book called Make Good the Promises, Reclaiming Reconstruction and Its Legacies. There's a new exhibit at the museum, and I'm moderating a conversation, uh, Didra Cross, also my good friend who is um, director of education programs down there. Um, it reached out to me and I'm really, believe me, to me, and I tell them all the time, this is like, this is this will be the third thing I've moderated for them in terms of their form. The last one they did was on World War One. They had a huge World War One exhibit and uh, Kinshasa and them put together a book, She and Karofsky Salters, called uh, We Return Fighting, which is brilliant. Brilliant piece of work together. It has Charles Hammond Houston in there. I mean, all kind of stuff. And uh, so I moderated the conversation with, well, he actually, uh, Salters and I had a conversation together. And again, this and they have Du Bois in there too. Because remember, We Return Fighting is from an editorial that Dr. Du Bois published in 1919 in the Crisis magazine because he had published an earlier one that was called Close Ranks. He said, Yeah, we got beef with the United States. Yeah, we got problems, but we need to close ranks and go and fight and win this war. Because I know some of y'all don't want to. A. Philip Randolph and them. A. Philip Randolph was writing, he and Chandler Owen in their journal, The Messenger, which the feds tried to stop from being mailed. And, and in fact, J. Edgar Hoover called A. Philip Randolph the most dangerous Negro in America because he was an open socialist. And, you know, this is just around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, so then you're in 1919. And by then, you know, Du Bois is like, well, this is close ranks. He was kind of angling for a military appointment. Really, that's a whole another story another day. We, 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 it's so much Du Bois we need to still talk about. And we'll do that in narrative at some point. But uh, in fact, we should get Cornell. We should just do that. I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot more Du Bois and Souls Black Folk, which we have, of course, in narrative. But um, he publishes a, this, this editorial, um, We Return Fighting. We're back from the war, and now we're going to have democracy in America. Or know the reason why. We return from fighting. We return fighting. So that was the last book they did before Make Good the Promises. And then before that, we did something for them over the Museum of the American Indian with my dear friend and brother, Dr. Daniel Black, who's at Clark Atlanta. Footnote. Shout out to the Clark Atlanta University, uh, Morehouse Spellman, Morris Brown, ITC, the Atlanta University Center. Young people, uh, I said, I'm sure you saw it, Professor Hunter, are there uh, striking now, protesting now, not only in solidarity with the Howard students and Blackburn takeover, but in solidarity with all HBCU students. I saw something uh, posted from North Carolina A&T. I saw Hampton is doing something in solidarity because these issues are not exclusive to Howard University. They're not even exclusive to HBCUs, but these black students seem to be finding a voice in through their lens and in their moment that echoes back through the years of black students deciding enough is enough. And so shout out to them, back to the to text. My friend, uh, Daniel Black, who teaches at Clark Atlanta University, um, his novel, The Coming, which I, rec I recommend everyone read, is Flatfoot Brilliant. Um, Dan just was uh, recently hospitalized. He's on the men, love that brother, sending all great energies to him. But uh, we did something at the Museum of the American Indian for the National Museum. Uh, this is actually uh, before they were built, before they were finished. So I'm uh, you know, very happy about that. But anyway, this one, Make Good the Promises Tuesday night. Uh, Kadada Williams, my friend uh, Hassan Kwame Jeffrey, Kwame Hassan Jeffries, who is uh, at Ohio State, uh, wrote two of the chapters in here. It's caused me to spend even more time in a period that, you know, a lot of us, and I think most of us think, is really the pivotal moment in the history of this uh, decomposing settler project called Reconstruction. 
And of course, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, which they both quote, by the way, it's all through here. It just makes me very happy that I'm looking really looking forward to Tuesday night. But it's caused me to go back. And and and, and I went on the shelf because I don't know how many, I don't know. If I if, if if after I get all this inventory done, and if I had, I don't know, 200 books on reconstruction, I wouldn't be surprised. But this is one that Adam Faircloth wrote fairly recently. This one came out in 2018. It's called The Revolution That Failed, Reconstruction in Natchitoches, uh, which is Mississippi. Um, Natchitoches, Mississippi. Adam Faircloth argues that Reconstruction failed. In fact, I'll just read from the back. Reconstruction failed, Faircloth argues, because the federal government lacked the means and the will to enforce the rights it had created. Congress had given the Republicans of the South and the Freedmen's Bureau an impossible task to create a new democratic order based on racial equality in a lawless region tortured by deep-rooted racial conflict. I'll stop with that and remind us that this prompt, the conversation we're about to have now on W.E.B. Du Bois, and what he did in 1947 with his colleagues in this appeal to the world, this document that he created, along with these other uh, uh, men that I will, uh, and, and, and one woman helped, uh, Irene Diggs, who was his research assistant. Um, this document is an attempt to internationalize this domestic struggle that African people have been engaged in since we were forced into this settler violence. And as he always does, and then I'll keep going to where I was going with this in terms of the events and next week and how this impacts Du Bois. As he always does, one of the genius things about Du Bois, I think, is that when you're reading him, if he's talking about a contemporary event, more often than not, if he has a little space to operate, I'm not just talking about a pager or some them long articles or the books like Black Reconstruction. He gonna start in Africa. This is this is the gene. See, how can I say that? We're often talk. We had this conversation on Monday night in uh, office hours, Professor. You know, we were talking about you know reading styles and how to read, and you know the question of being overwhelmed. And uh, Carolyn, this was two weeks ago actually in office hour. We were talking. And, you know, people say, well, where should I start? What should I read? Increasingly, in the academy, the university trained scholars, there's more and more attention on, on shorter and shorter time periods, smaller and smaller topics, dicing up topics, because a lot of academic scholarship is really about vocation. About ambition and vocation. So when you hear people say, I'm working on so and so, I'm working on such and such, what does that mean? That means that if I publish on this, I will get tenure, I'll get the promotion, I'll get the visible job. I'm trying to get to one of them top 100 universities, and then maybe I can flip that to get to the top 50, and maybe I can flip that to get on the Ivy League. And then you got another lane where people just kind of want to be broad because they figure I'm going to be a public facing person and I want to talk about it. And so they talk about a whole lot of stuff. And but when you see when you read Du Bois, a whole lot of stuff that I mean, my friend John Bracy up at UMass Amherst, he's the elder, he used to always say this. In fact, he wrote this in an article he wrote in Contributions to Black Studies many years ago. He says, you know, people spend theories on very thin margins of knowledge, which is why I find most of white-facing commercial entertainment, news media, pundit-driven television unwatchable. Like we started talking. And so soon I'm like, ooh, 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 no, you missed, ooh. But I understand. 
because you got to do that because the people watching this who will watch after this segment, the commercial that comes on after it will turn away if you get a little deeper than that, which is another reason I'm great grateful for this. But when you read Du Bois, Du Bois begins at the beginning. No matter what topic he's talking about, he usually finds a way to begin all the way at the beginning and bring it and then tie it all together. And so we see that in his appeal to the world, October 23rd, 1947. Pause. Now back the momentum just for a second is leading us to this text. So the reconstruction thing, I'm thinking, well, let me go back and reread because I don't, I, you know, I take very seriously when Kinshasa and them call me or Didger and them be like, yeah, we want you to participate. I'm saying, yo, that's like asking me to go to the Apollo. I don't play with that because that museum and its frame, first of all, I think in many ways, museums are the future of institutional education. It's not universities. Because the idea of a museum, even though it is an imperial idea that I fundamentally disagree with in many ways, they're here. And while they're here, they become battlegrounds for ideas. So if I were designing the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and I wrote an article in Ebony for this, I wrote an article in uh, Diverse Issues in Higher Education after it opened. I went and toured and, you know, kind of went down there low key incognito, you know, my cap on kind of looking stayed all day. When I go, I stay all day. I don't care how many times I've seen something. And then there's certain spirit centers in that museum. As we talked about Emmett Till's casket, that corner where Paul Robeson and Burt Williams up there on the top floor, kind of in the corner facing each other with their photographs. That piano that was used in August Wilson's The Piano Lesson. And you look over on the wall and he's standing there saying, you know, with his hand, with his hands over, folded like this and that hat on saying, you know, Africa. I, you know, I, I think the African has something to say. I'm like, man, this is something. There are spirit centers in there. Celia Cruz's dress. You know what I'm saying? Louis Armstrong's trumpet, you know what I'm saying? Going over there in the corner where Philadelphia International, the door where Tom Bell and them recording, and I can just hear Harold Melvin in the blue notes. Ah, miss you, miss you, baby. Every time I see that door with that carpet on, I think about Philadelphia International Records. My goodness. But the point is that if I were narrating that museum with enslavement in the basement, and then you rise up with that Thomas Jefferson statue, and you rise up to the top where the music and the culture is. I'm saying, thematically, I would have designed it differently. And that's mm. not a that's not an analysis or uh, that's not a critique or condemnation, because in my mind, you can't you can't tell the story of African people in this settler violence called the United States of America in this social structure. It can't be reconciled with the settler narrative in fact going back to this piece this is from the wall street journal same wall street journal fh buckley who teaches at scalia law school you know anthony scalia that's the name of the law school at george mason you know i ain't mad at him i love see this is the thing people be ready to argue with these guys why do you argue with them embrace them love them i want you to say what you believe with your whole chest who I don't want is the one to smile at you and believe something else. I can deal with these cats because I agree with them. This is, what Buck, this is what Buckley says. History is on the ballot in Virginia. He says, uh, he says, did the American Revolution originate in defending slavery? Not if all, not if it all began with a revolt in Lexington and Concord in 1775. But then the revolution would not likely have failed had Virginia not joined in and its slave-owning planters had been angered by Lord Dunmore's Emancipation Proclamation in the same year. All this is true. 
many things can be true. This is why they try to come after Gerald, Gerald Horn, the revolution, counter revolution 1776. But watch this. He says, but the truth isn't the only value. Let's read that again. But truth isn't the only value. In 1882, the French author, Ernest Renan, defined a nation as a combination of remembrance of glorious events and amnesia about ignoble ones. Quote, if the citizens of a nation have something in common, they have to have forgotten a good many things about their origins, period. He is absolutely right. And we said this many times, the violence of forgetting is required to build a nation. You can't tell the story of African people from our governance structures, from the resistance, from marunage, from running away, from staying put just to have a child to nurture the adulthood to say, you got next, you'll get us out of this. You can't tell that story fully and tell the story of George Washington and have a country. Somebody is gonna take a short. So when Dr. Rice says she doesn't want white children to feel bad, I see it. I'm glad she's saying it with her whole chest because I'm thinking about her grandparents, my mother, my mother's mother, my mother's mother's mother. I'm thinking about all the black women who wet nurse white children in the South. Did you not want them to feel bad, Condi? I know you don't because you've been a servant to power. At least Colin Powell, also a servant to power, a train killer. At least he had the self-respect as a person of African descent to say, look, if we can't kill everybody, we shouldn't go to war. Now that's a trained killer. And people say, see, he was a principled man. Yeah, he's a principled killer, but he does have principle, meaning what? I really don't want to go to war if I can help it. Now, why would he say that? Because I killed people before. Kindy, I know it's theoretical to you, sis, but I was in Vietnam. I seen people with they, all their shit blown off. And I know, I know it's somebody born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx. I know it's somebody whose parents came here from Jamaica. I know there's some bullshit, but I also know that if I hadn't done this, I wouldn't be able to provide some space maybe for some different people to make a different different set of choices. And I respect that, brother. Don't get you off the hook that you're a trained killer, but at least, but you, you don't want white children to feel bad standing on the view arguing with Sonny Dr. Rice. I understand you don't want them to feel bad. Does that include them white people that brought your ancestors here, don't answer the question. Really not interested in talking to you. I'd rather talk to your master. So Buckley says, because see, in these conversations, it does no good to talk to the one they sent. I want to talk to the one that sent you. Buckley represents the one that sent you. I want to have a conversation with the social structure. So Buckley, I'm like Du Bois in that regard. In the beginning of, oh, don't, don't get me started. My goodness, where is it? Where I need a copy of Black Reconstruction in America. I got four, five of them around here, and I can't see one. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, you know why? Because he don't want me quoting that, and I'm not going to get into it. We have to do it. Du Bois, I, I can quote it, not verbatim, but the first page of Black Reconstruction. This, this almost 800-page book. W.E.B. Du Bois says, I am writing this book with the assumption that black people are human. Well, he said Negroes. Negroes are human beings. 1935. Negroes are human beings. He says, I know by writing this with this assumption that I have already lost many people who do not assume that. He says, I'm okay with that. If you believe that black people are human beings, 
Read this book to understand what happened. If you don't, you ain't gonna read it anyway. W.E.B. Du Bois, Atlanta, Georgia, 1935. Meaning what? He's writing from Atlanta University. Y'all understand the importance of HBCU? We know that once you're at HBCU, the class fractures are there, and that's what's playing out even right now at Howard. I mean, and and the and the AUC and these other HBCUs. We know that all that's the before all of its deep contradictions. Lucy Diggs Slow putting up a sign for her on the street that if you go down the street, you done turned the, the damn dorm built for her into condos, and you tried to make her come on campus to live when she worked here. She refused, and when she got sick and was on her deathbed. The way y'all had treated her was so bad at Howard that when she did make transition and had her funeral on campus in the Andrew Rankin Memorial Chapel, the president of Howard University, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, was banned by the family from attending the funeral of Lucy Diggs-Slow. But if you wait 50, 60 years, you put up a street sign, it's all good. My point is that for all the contradictions, of the black school is still a black space. So Du Bois writing from a black space, black reconstruction. I know y'all don't want to hear this. So don't even worry about it. I'm not even talking to you. So my point is that in that moment, Du Bois engaging says, I must tell this truth. And if Dr. Rice doesn't want to accept that she should be public facing, that's fine. We'll talk to Buckley. Buckley says the truth isn't the only value. You're building a nation, which means there's going to be a violence of forgetting, which means when you start talking about reconstruction, make good the promises. One of the questions I'm going to ask Tuesday night is, what promise? They promised you a lash and some oatmeal, maybe, and some cornmeal. And these are my friends. And I'm not being critical of them. I want you to clarify for the audience, everybody watching and having a conversation, what promise? Because Adam Faircloth said, they ain't really have no prop. The promise was ass whipping, which is going to bring us in a minute to do voice. There was never a plan to make you fully human. I was reading an article and something I keep pointing over here because it was in the other room. I was reading this article. I was in a bed one night and I'm just reading this article and I'm like, oh, shit. The whole article was about citizenship in Africa and the fact that so many people in the world, but they were focusing on Kenya, this article, used it as a springboard. You know, so many people in the world are born without papers, rural villages or wherever. When you are born without papers in a country, how do you prove you're a citizen? Hmm. The prompt for this was Kenya, where you have people who are trying to reconstruct when they were born, when their parents were born, when their parents were born, because anybody alive without papers can't get all the services. And the theme is what makes you a citizen of a country? Now, I'm also reading another book on open borders, which is fascinating to me. The whole idea of why do you need papers? You're born, you're alive. Come on, get these services. Let's document it. What's your name? But the idea you got to prove where you came out of your mama's womb to be able to eat, to be able to get health care, to distinguish between whether you can get the full suite of services or not is absurd. But it is the world that we live in now. So that part of this make good the promises theme, part of the reconstruction theme, part of the idea of black citizenship, 1619 project, you name it. All of this ties to the idea that somehow where you would born, were born should determine your life, your potential, your aspirations, your memory. And there's a violence of forgetting that comes. And so I'm saying all that to say that Dr. Du Bois, 
Dr. Du Bois in 1947, actually, no, <laughs> let me just, let me, let me get, let me get this straight. In fact, let me just rely on, because here, here's where we get to the meat of it. I don't have a whole lot of time, but I'm, we're going to have fun with this. Uh, for those of you who don't want to go through all the storm and drong and go through all the texts, you know, there, there are so many books on Du Bois. I mean, first of all, Du Bois wrote a bookshelf by itself. Then everybody else wrote bios of him. Everybody from Manny Marable to Honor Rampasad, you name it. There's so many. I won't even. And then there are books on some of the books like this. A lot of books on Souls of Black Folk. A couple on Re Black Reconstruction, so forth and so on. The world in Africa, other things. But by, by the end of World War II, Du Bois was born in 1868, mind you. So 68, 78, 88, 98, 32 years old, before the zero, add another 45, that's a 76. Du Bois in 1945 is 70, no, what is he? 45, 55, 65, 75. Shit. <laughs> du Bois 77 years old. He's an old man. And he started writing his first newspaper articles and you'll appreciate this as a, as a member of the craft that I am not a member of, but you and Du Bois, Du Bois started writing for the first newspapers when he was like 14, 15 years old, writing from Great Barrington for the New York Age and sending in little things on black people. I, was like, I see you, bro. So he's been writing from the time he was in his early teens to the time he makes transition in Ghana at 95. He has basically documented the century of his life for all intents and purposes. By 1945, Du Bois is not only an old man, he done lived through two world wars. He was active during the Spanish-American War. He done seen the rise and fall of empires. He done seen Africa before Africa was colonized, go through colonization and live to see it coming out of colonization. In fact, met in Manchester in 1945 at the Fifth Pan-African Congress. They call him the grandfather of this Pan-African movement, even though he was beefing with Garvey when Garvey then was Madison Square Garden in 1920. And as a younger man, he was at the first Pan-African Conference that Henry Sylvester Williamson then called in 1900 in London. So this is who Du Bois is, bringing all these contradictions, all this momentum, all this love for Black people, all this critique of Black people, all this smash white supremacy into this room. Critical race theory. You people can't spell critical race theory. You don't know nothing about it. And the people who are writing and thinking through critical race theory with all their brilliance, some of them my friends, could put your pen down and go listen to Du Bois. Just, just go read Du Bois. And many of them to their credit do. So anyway, if you don't want to go through all the validity of Du Bois, we talked about Du Bois like, you know, get David Lever David Levering Lewis does a decent, uh, very good job, in fact. Uh, this is volume two of his two-volume uh, uh, biography of Du Bois. This is volume two, where he talks about this document we're going to talk about for a few minutes. And what you see is W.E.B. Du Bois. And I just do this. And in fact, let me just put the, the timer on. I don't, I don't go through the life of Du Bois because it's really ain't about the life of Du Bois. So, but Du Bois, of course, who works at the University of Pennsylvania long enough to get the research that becomes Philadelphia Negro, works at Wilberforce. He only worked at HBCUs in terms of teaching. It wouldn't even let him stay on campus at Penn. Shout out to Penn for trying to act like y'all care now. Go to hell. Anyway, the point is that Wilberforce. And I say that as a as a longtime West Philadelphian who spent many, 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 many days in Penn Library and bookstores and around the classrooms. But yeah, nobody want to hear that. Anyway, the point is that 
uh, Du Bois taught at Wilberforce, then Atlanta University, as we know, then goes to the NAACP as the founding director of the crisis, stays there until the mid-30s, at which point they put him out. Why? Because he wrote Black Reconstruction. He's saying, you know, segregation needs to be smashed. But while it's here, we should improve these Black institutions we have. Because while we're waiting on segregation and fighting it, we need to have, uh, and our Black stuff can be just as good. Oh, you talking about segregation? No, fool. I'm saying we in the Black thing now. We just going to sit here and this shit. No, let's keep building it up as we attack. <laughs> That's too much. Oh, well, the F you then. Now, he's in his 60s when they put him out the first time. He goes because his friend John Hope is president at Atlanta University. So he comes back in the sociology department, the chair sociology department. He's there. John Hope dies. Now his enemies can get at him. The board, the funders, and Du Bois, who later in his autobiography, he writes, I knew they was coming. My man's is gone. Deuces. He need a job. They bring him back to the NAACP. It's 1944. 1945, the war ends. He don't like Walter White, which is a whole nother thing. It's hilarious, some of this correspondence you see, Du Bois. But Walter White is cutting a figure in the world. He built his, cut his eye teeth on anti-lynching. Paul, shout out to Ida B. Wells, who blazed that trail, who never got full credit for it. But hey, that's okay. It's not okay, but I'm just saying, we want to make sure to come back come to the footnote. He's against, from the footnote, he is, you know, him and Walter White always beefing, tussling. Walter White got a Lieutenant Roy Wilkins always side-eyeing as well, because after World War II, what do you see emerge? You got the USSR, the Russians, you got the Chinese. Yeah, we all nice. It's nice. We all together. Okay, the war is over. F you. Cold War. And they start beefing. And he got the United States. And this is where these hillbillies showing up at these school districts. I mean, they're, they're teaching CRK and it's communism. It's Marxism. Okay, spell Marxism. Spell communism. Better yet. No, just keep talking. Where you going? I'm leaving because I'm not standing. I got work to do. But the point is that this whole communist Marxist stuff comes from this period. Not even 20 years before, after World War I. Really, World War II, because they're competing with the Russians. So if you say Russia, oh, oh, got scared everybody. That's why you got Jackie Robinson down there trying to get him to go against Paul Robeson, because Robeson is not going to turn his back on the colored world or on the Soviet Union. They mad at Du Bois. They mad at all them. William Patterson, Doxy Wilkerson, uh, anybody, you name these people. Anyway, the point is this. But Du Bois is in the NAACP. This is where Carol Anderson's book, among many others, is very good, Bourgeois Radicals. In other words, the NAACP is standing to smash racism in America. They go into the courts to do it. Du Bois is there, the old man. You can't tell him nothing. You couldn't tell him nothing when he was 25. You damn sure ain't gonna tell him nothing in his 70s. But you you need Du Bois. He has credibility. Of course, he's in the anti-war movement too, the peace movement with, with, with ropes in them. So they're like, eh, peace movement, anti-nuclear weapons movement. Are you a communist? Well, I think the Soviet Union has some things to tell you. Oh, hell, just, just be quiet, man. Would you please be quiet? Y'all can't tell this old man to be quiet, but you need him because the world is shifting and the United States trying to make nice with all of these non-white countries that are coming into existence or going to come into existence over the next 20 years. So Du Bois becomes a person they, they appoint to the position of director of special research. And one of the cats who ends up writing in the appeal to the world is this dude. I encourage y'all go look for him. This is a guy named Earl B. Dickerson. This is the book on Dickerson, the first book on Earl B. Dickerson. Dickerson was a lawyer. He came out of Mississippi, Canton, Mississippi, born in 1891, made transition in 1986. He was a lawyer. He went to the University of Chicago Law, Law School. He was the first black member of Franklin Roosevelt's first Fair Employment Practices Committee. So you know who he knew. The Where's Waldo of our ongoing conversations and Arnold Hedgeman. But anyway, we'll come back. <laughs> 
everybody, it's like, I don't know, it's like, you know, forget about six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. Do you have six degrees of separation from Anna Arnold Hedgeman? That's the question. <laughs> anyway, he was the one of the lawyers and really, as he's called here by his biographer, the power behind Hansberry versus Lee. Hansberry versus Lee was the Supreme Court case that along with some others, Shelley versus Kramer, Heard versus Hyde, some others, a DC case that Charles Hamilton Houston argued, ended restrictive real estate covenants. Now, the reason I mentioned that, the point is that, well, I'll tell you why we even mentioned that Earl Dickinson, in addition to the fact that he wrote a chapter in Appeal to the World. That case, Hansberry versus Lee, the Hansberry in that, his daughter, well, his brother was Will, was William Leo Hansberry, who's on the faculty at Howard for many years. William Leo Hansberry, Howard's niece, the brother Hansberry's daughter was Lorraine Hansberry. When you read, when you hear, read, watch the play, the movie, the film uh, that Felicia Rashad did, was in in the version of it, A Raisin in the Sun, it is the dramatization of that struggle to end the restrictive covenants. There's a gloss on that. She was a girl when it happened. Earl Dickinson was a lawyer. Earl Dickinson was appointed to the board of the NAACP. And it was Dickerson who worked with a few others to get Du Bois back into the NAACP. Because, you know, they really didn't, if they could have gotten around Du Bois, they wanted to. But Du Bois was the leading scholar in the world. Black, white, polka dot. And he's black. And he's talking black, writing black, being black. Almost 80 years, we need the guy. He comes in. And so, Here's where we go into it. Let me go back to my man, David Levering Lewis. I remember when this book came out. There's a whole story I can tell you about that. But anyway, while Du Bois is doing this, he's hanging out with all his radical friends. So Ben Davis, uh, <laughs> Ben Davis, this is a story for another day. He, he, he's he got ties to all these other organizations, the National Negro Congress. That's a, oh wait. Mm. Come on, Gerald. I'll never be able to get my hands on it quick. It's behind these books here. Probably University of Delaware Press. Yep. Give me about maybe six or seven seconds to pull this. There you go. All right. This is Gerald's book called Communist Front, the Civil Rights Congress, 1946 to 1956. All these organizations that were talking about human rights and liberty and anti-war and all this, the federal government and scared Negroes Colleagues Rice would have been comfortable during this period, I think. We're attacking them as being communists. What is communist about everybody should eat? What is communist about everybody should have a job? Well, you're talking about socialism. As Du Bois points out in the appeal to the world, we're going to talk about in a second, who else was talking about socialist programs? A guy named Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, let's put what the New Deal was. In fact, the New Deal was still racist now. I mean, but if you, in fact, you want a good, if you got only one book to read, this is a good one to read about the New Deal. This is Ira Katz Nelson's book, Fear Itself, The New Deal and the Origins of Our Time. It's a very interesting book because you see the racism in the New Deal, but it's still an attempt to get resources to the people who don't have resources. So anyway, Du Bois is hanging with uh, the Council on African Affairs. There's a very good book by Penny Van Eschen called Race Against Empire that talks about that. The National Lawyers Guild, the NLG, then the Radical Lawyers. Parenthetically, hashtag Blackburn Takeover. When I was there the other night, ran into some lawyers, legal observers there on the ground. Where y'all from? We from the NLG. I just started laughing. Oh, you got them hardcore radical lawyers over here. So uh, a word to the wise is sufficient, as old folks used to say to us. 
if you're gonna go over there and try to shut them young people down, understand they got some people that can match you mind for mind, brain for brain, and you will lose. So everybody just say less on all these threats, okay? So anyway, we continue. And, and, and so he's traveling, he's in London, he hangs with H.G. Uh, Wells, he knew H.G. Wells, it's very interesting. He talk, then he has a, he comes back and he meets with these young people who start something called the Southern Negro Youth Conference. This is the first SNCC, S-N-Y-C. We talked about this a while ago. Remember when we talked about uh, the piece that was published in Freedom Ways years later, published several places, Du Bois's speech, Behold the Land, that he gives in Columbia, South Carolina, where he says the future of the American Negro is in the South. It's one of the documents everybody has now that's been dropped in the link. And when y'all go on social media, it'll be there in the link. Behold the Land. It's the one where he starts, and I, I pulled up the PDF. He says, the future of the American Negroes is in the South. Here, 327 years ago, they began to enter what is now the United States of America. Here they have made their greatest contribution to American culture, and here they have suffered the damnation of slavery, the frustration of reconstruction, and the lynching of emancipation. The lynching of emancipation. Pause. Du Bois a poet. He, he, he wrote poetry. When you read Du Bois, you're reading a poet. And people say, oh, Du Bois is a... Nah, man. One of the reasons I love to, to read Du Bois is Du Bois will hit a phrase and it'll be past you before you say, oh, shit, what? <laughs> like, in the, and this is one of the things we were talking, we had a, we had a pre-meeting uh, the other day, and I won't be able to find a Du Bois quote. I, I, they were talking about what quotes they wanted to put in the PowerPoint in the slides, because it's going to be um, uh, remote for this thing we're doing Tuesday night. And I was telling them, you know, some of my favorite quotes. And so they text me and say, you know, you want to put this on the slide? You want to put this on the slide? I said, we'll be here all night. We will be here all night. So no, you ain't got to put all this on the slide. And but they had it. Oh wait, here we go. Let's see. Let me see. Uh, <laughs> like okay, here's the voice from Black Reconstruction in America. I'm gonna read this. He says, "We have spoiled and misconceived the position of the historian. If we are going in the future to be able to use human experience for the guidance of mankind, we have got to clearly distinguish between fact and desire." Now, he wrote that in 1935 for Barack Obama and Condi Rice. America's the greatest country in the world. We're better than that. And we, you know, th these are aberrations in our large, more long march to freedom. We're perfecting the division of the founders. Du Bois, oh, if we're going to make some progress, we're going to have to distinguish between fact and desire. You read that, hmm. Oh, shit, let me go back. <laughs> Y'all talking about something never existed. And I get why. Because you're tired of the lash. But anyway, after Behold the Land, and we could spend a whole, in fact, we should, I'm, you know, I'm going to do something special on Behold the Land because we talked about it now twice and I want to talk about it. But here we go. David Levin Lewis, this is 1945. By 1946, he's back, he's writing, and he meets with Snick and them earlier. The, you know, he, talk, he talks a long, long about that. But then he comes together with this UN appeal to the world. And this is what happens. David Levin Lewis says this, the five member team, Du Bois prepared for presentation to the United Nations with the association's approval. The five member team assembled by Du Bois to research and draft the NAACP authorized document has been, work, has been working at breakneck speed. Rayford Logan, the historian from Howard, we talked about Rayford Logan and what the Negro wants. Remember that? Those of you who don't know what we're talking about, look, we're on 85 now, a couple of hours of pop, 85 times 
on average and the Nubia and office hours. And look, we are just beginning to jailbreak. All right. These young people intense fighting about tuition and housing and all those fights are righteous. And as you say, Professor, we can do many things at once and we got to support them. We got it because it's for the institution. It's for all of us. We're transforming the idea. But as we are doing this, recognize the higher education model in this country is unsustainable. What we're doing, this is the future of higher education. And the museums are still free. So we're going to start networking. We're doing it now. Anyway, Du Bois goes on and says, I mean, uh, uh, David Levin Lewis says, so Rayford Logan, who was at Howard, Hugh Smythe, who had replaced Irene Diggs as research assistant, Earl Dickerson, who by this time was assistant attorney general of Illinois while he was on the university board. We talked about him. William Ming, a Howard University Law School professor, and Milton Convitz, a labor relations professor at Cornell, completed their respective pieces by the first week of December. Bunch and Hasty were to be consulted periodically. That's Ralph Bunch and William Hasty. Hasty came out of Howard Law School, judge, federal judge. Ralph Bunch, of course, set up political, uh, political science department at Howard. Ralph Bunch becomes a diplomat for the UN. Ralph Bunch and Eleanor Roosevelt get real close. We're going to come to Eleanor in a second because that's who's going to be. Eleanor Roosevelt's going to play the role of Dikembe Mutombo in our story. But at any rate, the criticism of the preliminary document offered an association's a National Legislative Council, Leslie Perry, impressed Du Bois, offered by the by her, uh, by him, Leslie Perry, who immediately invited the young attorney to compile the statistical matter dealing with employment, wages, comparative literacy, housing, and wealth. Perry became the team's unofficial sixth, sixth member. Here's the document, Professor Hunter. You urged and prompted us today to remember that was uh, released on October the 23rd to the United Nations, 1947. David Levering Lewis writes that an appeal to the world. The statement on the denial of human rights to minorities in the case of citizens of Negro descent in the United States of America and an appeal to the United Nations for redress. 94 pages of encyclopedic data compressed and interpreted was to be completed by late August of 1947 and submitted to the MSCP board for final approval in September. An appeal to the world as well as the Pan-African UN petition. Pan-African UN petition. Oh yeah. Y'all go back through when we talk about Paul Robes and William Patterson and look for a document and a book that I mentioned at the time that I'm going to refrain from getting up to go over there. I'll pull the first edition of it off my shelf which is called We Charge Genocide. This is Paul and S.E. Robeson. This is W.B. and Shirley Graham Du Bois. This is uh, William Th Patterson and Louise Thompson Patterson. This is all them black people from all over the country. And they and they deliver this petition with a forceful critique of the United States. They said, y'all got a UN Human Rights Convention, right? Yeah, y'all got a statement against genocide, right? Yeah, okay, we charge genocide. That's going to be 1951. Before we charge genocide is an appeal to the world. What are they doing? Tying this all together now. We bring it home. What are they doing? They are saying, y'all brought us here in chains from our home. You never intended on us to be citizens. You fought a war with each other because the economy was, wouldn't, wouldn't work it out. We had our own ideas from the governance structure about freedom and liberation. We fought our way out. We can't all get up back on the boat and go back. In fact, we can't get on the boat and go back because we was born here. So we're going to fight it out here. Even as we fight it out here, though, 
we're going to recognize we don't just live in the United States. That's not the only piece of land in the world. And after these two world wars, when you start talking about making the world safe for democracy, not that old BS, we're going to test that. Why? Because we live in the world. And this, on a micro level, what's going on at Howard, what's going on at Atlanta University Center, when people at HBCU say, don't be putting our dirty laundry in public. And these kids like, huh? Somebody's going to suffer? Hell no. Nah. What do boys to them say? United States is like, wait, don't be putting our public because we're we trying to tell these people in Africa and the Caribbean, we're trying to tell these people in Latin America that we're good guys. I mean, so we don't want y'all Negroes out here talking about, you know, that's when we talked about SNCC, the second SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Them young people was like, hell no. Nah. They went down to the Peace Tree Manor to meet Oginga Odinga, the Kenyan, and they was like, dude, they got you in one of the only two integrated hotels in Atlanta. They're trying to sell you that BS. And at the same time, we telling you we out here getting drugged just for the right to go sit somewhere and ride a bus and to be treated like human beings and to vote. He's like, word? Yeah. He said, oh, no. And then they parted with Uhuru and they took that and put it in a song. And that's the song they sang a couple of weeks ago when we talking about Fannie Lou Hamer and Malcolm X in Harlem. And the SNCC singers came up there, the freedom singers singing Oginga Odinga. In other words, no. Dirty laundry, if your drawers is dirty, the world must see. Why? Because we can't trust y'all. First of all, you brought us over here, stuffed this language in our mouths, and we were able to manage still to put our language in it. And then you worked shadow of us for years to build your wealth. Then you figured out it was unsustainable, so you let us go, but you wanted to keep us in the same jobs we were doing before, just not as slaves, because now you're embarrassed. So... And that little crap called Reconstruction, we tried to build a whole ass country that you never imagined. But as Adam Fairclough said, it failed because you never gave it the support because you was never with it for the first place. As long as we were still working, you just call us sharecroppers and you ain't got to pay for clothes and food. So therefore, you actually fixed a problem and you let your cousins and them, it, the ex-plantation owners and their children continue to run this game. Okay, no problem. Now we got to fight our way out of that and we don't have no friends in this social structure. So all of a sudden, you done fought two world wars. We fought in both of them and now we come back and the first time we said we returned fighting, you came back with your red summer. You're trying to lynch everybody. F you then. Then you dropped a bomb on us in Tulsa and did all this other shit. You ran us, tried to run us out of East St. Louis. We fighting. You tried to kill us in Chicago. And what did we do? We gave you that work. Because we don't give a damn. And Du Bois is there watching the whole thing, writing, watching the whole thing, teaching, watching the whole thing. 1945, you dropped two bombs on some non-white people and now one on Germany. We see. We see what you're doing. Du Bois, Paul Robeson and them, Essie Robeson and them, Shirley Graham, we're against all nuclear weapons. You're a communist. Oh, you know what? Why don't you go with Colin Powell uh, people? Because y'all killers and you just want to kill people. And then you want to write Jesus Christ's name on the, on the side of your bomb. Like you onward Christian soldiers or something. Actually, you are onward Christian soldiers because we understand that European style Christianity is about fighting and killing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of like how y'all design that Red Rover game and that football game. But our ways of knowing are about, you know, dancing and community, you know, like Richard Roundtree jogging up and down on the beach in uh, Man Friday or Pele playing soccer. In other words, why everybody got to be punching somebody in the face? We know what? Later for this, there are more of us than there are you. So when Du Bois gets this team together, this Aaron Dirty Laundry, I ain't even got no draws. We getting ready to show the world the naked, black behind of what's going on to us in this social structure. And we're going to make an appeal to the world. So, you know, you can't do that. 
without the social structure responding. So what happens? Well, friends, these people who are anti-CRT, they would say what we're doing now is CRT. First of all, this is not CRT. And as Du Bois said, you got to change between fact and desire. And as this dude writing from the Scalia Law School in the Wall Street Journal said the other day, if you want to build a nation, some of it's going to involve what I call the violence of forgetting. But guess what? Maybe building a nation isn't the objective. You can have a state that doesn't have the same set of national identities. And that's what's killing these white nationalists. It's not enough for everybody to be able to have a driver's license because you don't want everybody to have a driver's license. It's not enough for everybody to vote. Well, you don't want everybody to vote. You want to force your memories into my head and you're not going to do that. Worse still, you want to keep your children from learning something different that might make them a little less racist and you will, you're willing to risk. In fact, you would prefer that my child learn what you want her to learn so she'll keep being your Condoleezza Rice or Colin Powell. Not going to happen. So who do they send? To talk to Du Bois because she's a founder. She was at the founding of the, of the uh, UN in San Francisco in 1945. She's part of the delegation, permanent delegation to the UN. She's working with the State Department. Who do they send to tell Du Bois, who got the red, uh, the green light rather, from the NAACP to take this thing to the uh, to the United Nations with his team, 94 pages, and I'm going to end with the with the with a little bit of from the document. But who do they send? Well, here we go. Y'all knew who they sent. A lady who they tell y'all walked on water. She was friends with Polly Murray. We talked about Polly Murray. Ooh, Eleanor Roosevelt. This is the volume of her papers. With the heightening of international relations, page 862, volume one of the human rights years, uh, 1945 to 1948. This is volume two, but mostly in volume one. All right. Parenthetically, at some point, because time is short, not just today, but in life, you know, how many more days we have, we don't know. At some point, you think, and this is again, thank the ancestors for you, Professor Hunter, thank the ancestors for narrative and for Nubia as we build brick by brick, everybody bringing their brick. There's going to come a time when this is all I do with young people and anybody else. We got our space. We got the library set up, man. And we sit around reading, writing. We send young people on these assignments because guess what? It does no good. I feel like Michel Foucault when he was at the College de France and he writes, he says, you know, you know, I come give a lecture. It's like a, they, they watching an acrobat. This is not cool. I'm just, you know what I'm saying? No, you want people, the whole person, Medu Yahu in the ancient Egyptian, train your replacement. So that's why we got these young cats. Look, I resisted the urge to put my girl on today. I'm rocking Nubia because we in Nubia. But anyway, with the heightening of the international tensions in 1947, Walter White and W.E.B. Du Bois disagreed on how to proceed with the publicizing, with publicizing discriminatory practices in the United States. White empathized with Eleanor Roosevelt and saw in her a valuable ally. When Eleanor Roosevelt told him that she would have publicly endorsed the NAACP's NAACP's petition, had it not been for the propaganda value her support would have provided the Soviets, White accepted her argument. In other words, Du Bois and them have prepared this hella thing called the appeal to the world. NAACP gives them the green light. They at the UN. Eleanor Roosevelt's like, hold up, wait a minute. Just going to embarrass the United States. The Soviets is like, the Russians is like, we'll introduce it. We vote because they wanted it adopted by the UN as the position. Who blocked it? Eleanor Roosevelt. No, no, no. 
Dikembe Mutombo. Why? That's y'all friend. You think? When the flag goes up the flagpole, I salute that first, the social structure. Now, what you talking about, I sympathize, but we got enemies. Who is we? Who is we? That's why when you hear people call people communists or socialists, okay, AOC and the squad and Bernie Sanders, they're socialists. Dude, you ain't got no health care. You didn't eat today. All your teeth getting ready to fall out your mouth. And the only thing you can do is stumble to the school board meeting and tell her, teaching my granddaughter, she already did socialism. Franklin Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt's husband, said the only way you're going to have a country is that the least of these have to be put in some form of economic security. Now, here's where Du Bois comes in. Du Bois is like, I like that New Deal stuff. It's racist, but we got to keep pushing. At the same time, how come you can have something to eat in the United States, maybe, but you linked it to these people overseas who you invade and not having anything to eat? World imperialism, which is why when you read what Du Bois writes, The World of Africa, 1945, Black Reconstruction in America, 1935, when you read Du Bois's uh, books, his articles, his essays, he never delinks the struggle domestically from the struggle internationally because he said, you have to understand this settler project was set up as empire and it has never stopped being an empire. Every time they've gotten in trouble, You've seen little cracks, and that's where we've made some progress, but y'all stop talking about Black progress as if somehow this is the greatest country in the world. No, you made progress because you were unrelenting and trying to make progress, and the cracks in the social structure appeared when they was trying to bring out some old international BS. And so the only way they sustain this unsustainable model for as long as we have is to keep you saluting that flag and pretending like where you came out of your mother's womb somehow makes you better than somebody else who came out on another continent or in another country. We continue. He says, Du Bois, on the other hand, refused to accept that tensions between the United States and the USSR should prevent the NAACP from addressing problems of racial discrimination in the United States. In several letters, Du Bois urged the delegate to do all within his power. Warren Austin, who was a delegate to the UN, to place the NAACP's petition on the General Assembly's agenda. So what happens? This guy, Warren Austin, this white dude at the UN, he's like, man, I got to get this cat Du Bois off me. Walter, what can you do? Oh, man, the guys, man. Okay, well, she, I, I, I can't talk to him. Eleanor. <laughs> and we go to the footage. Document 365, Volume 1, W.E.B. Du Bois to Walter White. 1st of July, 1948, subject, meeting with Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, NAACP petition, pause, pause. Before we get to that, I'm looking at the clock, I know we have a lot of time, ER, Eleanor Roosevelt. I'm gonna bring in John Johnson for a minute. John H. Johnson, the publisher of Ebony and Jet. John H. Johnson, um, stalked Eleanor, stalked Eleanor Roosevelt to publish in Negro Digest. These are a few issues of Negro Digest. Negro Digest was the first of his publications before Jet, before Ebony. These are some Negro Digest. They're very old. 1944, 1945. Look, July 1945, 1944, the question, should Negroes quit Roosevelt? You got yes, no, yes, no. Look, 1943, should Negroes be given war jobs? Yes, no, yes, no. They have art. Oh, wait, this one right here is wow. This is December 1942. Is lynching justified? What is John Johnson doing? 
John Johnson is forcing. Say it with your chest if you don't believe it. Because I want the black public to read all of y'all. I want them to know who you are. He, he They run a regular column in Negro Digest called And If I Were White. No, no, no. No, no I'm sorry. And If I Were Negro. Let me see. Man, I thought I marked it. Damn it. Damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. Come on, son. Come on now. You know you had that marked it, right? Oh, hold on for a second because it's in her papers and I and I couldn't get my hands on uh uh uh, uh. too much stuff is in storage. But anyway, that's just that's a story for another day. Give me just about maybe 10 more seconds to get to Negro Digest in the There we go. 86861. Oh, duh. It's right before this. Everybody slow down. He stalks Eleanor Roosevelt. He tells the story himself, other places, his, his biography, Success Against the Odds. Eleanor Roosevelt says, I don't have time. Now, Johnson's like, you don't have time. Okay. Then one day she comes to Chicago to give a talk. John Johnson sends a telegram to the hotel. They deliver it the same day. Uh, would love to meet with you. To she finally agrees to write an article. The, the column in Negro Digest he ran regularly was, if I were a Negro. This is what Eleanor Roosevelt wrote. In 1943, she says, if I were a Negro today, I think I would have moments of great bitterness. It would be hard for me to sustain my faith in democracy and to build up a sense of goodwill toward men of other races. She goes on to say, I would still feel that I ought to participate in full in this war. When the United States, when the, when the United Nations win, this is two years before this United Nations organization, she's talking about all the countries. Certain things will be accepted as a result of principles which have been enunciated by the leaders of the United Nations, which never before have been part of the beliefs and practices of the greater part of the world. If I were a Negro, freedom, promise or fact, Negro Digest, October 1943, pages eight to nine. Why is that important? You telling Negroes, just hold on a little while. Just hold on a little while. Du Bois comes back to the to, to the uh, NAACP and is like, hold on. Well, these, how many more times y'all gonna go for this movie? No problem. Walter, I'm doing this thing. I'm gonna get my team and we're gonna do this. They can't get him because they need him. And cats like Ernest Dickinson on the board giving him cover. When they put this thing together, Professor Hunter, when I tell you all of those almost 100 pages and there's a 16 page introduction that y'all can read, watch this. This is what we're gonna end for today. I like at my nine o'clock. This will take a couple of minutes. I love it. This is what Du Bois said. I'm reading from the from the PDF. I got it here pulled up. There were in the United States of America in 1940, 12 point, almost 12.9 million citizens. I'm sorry. Let me just give Du Bois credit. Du Bois went and went them Randolph Negroes. Let me just read it verbatim. There were in the United States of America, 1940, 12,865,518 citizens and residents, something less than a tenth of the nation, who formed largely a segregated caste with restricted legal rights and many illegal disabilities. Now he's setting them up now. He's setting them up. They are descendants of the Africans. He, he don't, he always start. They are descendants of the Africans brought to America during the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries and reduced to slave labor. This group has no complete biological unity, but varies in color from white to black and comprises a great variety of physical characteristics since many are the offspring of white European Americans as well as Africans and American Indians. There are a large number of white Americans who also descend from Negroes, but who are not counted in the colored group subject to caste restrictions because the preponderance of white blood conceals their descent, the poetry. 
the poetry. <laughs> Y'all running around here passing for white. The so-called American Negro group, therefore, while it is in no sense absolutely set off physically from its fellow American, has nevertheless a strong hereditary cultural unity born of slavery, of common suffering, prolonged prescription and curtailment of political and civil rights, and especially because of economic and social disability, largely from this fact have arisen their cultural gifts to America. Their rhythm, music and folk song, their religious faith and customs, their contribution to American art and literature, their defense of their country in every way on land, sea, and in the air, and especially the hard continuous toil upon which the prosperity and wealth of this continent has largely been built. This is one paragraph, now that's page Three. Now it's, it's 16 pages. We can't go through all. That. I just want to hit a couple of highlights. Page seven. I'm going to page seven right quick. Where Du Bois basically does the whole thing. He says this. They made a truce after the Civil War. Victory in the Civil War brought dilemma. If victory meant full economic freedom for labor in the South, white and black. Remember, you talked to them SNCC kids. S-Y-N-C in Columbia, South Carolina, 1945, there are white and black kids. And he says, the future's in the South. And therefore, if y'all drop this race thing, y'all can move forward. He says, if it meant land and education and eventually votes, then the slave empire was doomed. And the profits of Northern industry built on the Southern slave foundations would also be seriously curtailed. But he doesn't, it ain't North versus the South. The North was with the South. The North businessmen were with the South. Northern industry had a stake in the cotton kingdom and the cheap slave labor that supported it. It had expanded for war industries during the fighting, encouraged by government subsidy and eventually protected by a huge tariff rampart. When war profits declined after the Civil War, it was still prospected tremendous post-war profits on cotton and other products of Southern agriculture. Therefore, what the North wanted was not freedom and higher wage for black labor, but its control under such forms of law as would keep it cheap. Meaning what? Jim Crow. Well, the South was about Jim Crow. Hell, the North businessmen were about Jim Crow, too. They didn't want y'all have moving to Chicago and L.A. You know, that happened when they had a war and couldn't stop and have a labor shortage. And y'all came up here. That's why if you in L.A., if you're in the Bay Area, you probably don't go back before the 1940s. Du Bois is laying y'all out international finance capital, the international social structure, and it's all in a document. He's taken to the U.N. and Eleanor Roosevelt ass sitting there like white Matumbo, like, oh, hell no. <laughs> you can't bring this shit. Now, I know y'all love uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, but not today, not this day. Anyway, let's finish. On pace, he goes on, he says, because they got to make peace, because these Negroes ain't going back to slavery. He said the result was an attempt at reconstruction in which black labor established schools, tried to divide up the land, and put a new social legislation in force. On the other hand, power of the southern landowners soon joined with northern industry to disfranchise the negro kept him from access to free land and the capital and to build up the present caste system for blacks founded on color discrimination penage intimidation and mob violence go to 2021 where y'all at delta where y'all at coca-cola where y'all at no y'all dead ass silent about these this disfranchisement movement in the south why because you don't need negroes voting to make your money in fact you're getting ready to try to put back into the mayoralty of atlanta a straight neoliberal who's trying to stop buckhead 80 percent white from seceding they gonna leave anyway kasim reed bruh you already gave every tax abatement in the world to that damn uh, spaceship they built over there right on the fringes of Atlanta University Center. And you saying it's good for business, which means it's good for black people. Yeah, it's good for rich black people. You go back to the Atlanta child murders for the class divisions in Atlanta. Poor black people been taking an ass with me. Du Bois used to live in Atlanta. Go read Du Bois. He's saying 
This is a deal. They're never going to stop business in America. And every business, I don't care whether you're in Texas, whether you're in Mississippi, whether you're in Alabama or Georgia, they are not going to speak about the crime of white nationalists trying to pass everything from knocking over women's right to choose to getting rid of voting rights to, to overrunning the school boards with CRT. They ain't going to say nothing. Why? Because they ain't, they ain't going to miss a drop of Coca-Cola. They ain't going to miss a flight on Delta. They're not going to miss, and they love deregulation, anti-union. This is the speech Du Bois gave to them kids in the Southern Youth Negro Youth Conference in 1945, Beholding Land. They love no unions because that means that they will keep you poor. That means you too. I'm against CRT. You against yourself. You, you realize that gun you holding is on your temple. And every time you pull it, you blow two more of the eight brain cells you have out of your head. You need to be together with these people. But somehow they have convinced you that whiteness is more valuable than your life. And that's why you ain't got no health care. That's why you ain't got no insurance. And that's why they keep paying you $2 a day or something like that. Or got that. Anyway, the whole point. He goes on. Du Bois says this about reconstruction and the failure. He says, it is this fact that underlies many of the contradictions in the social and political development of the United States since the Civil War. Despite our resources and our miraculous technique, despite a contemporary high wage paid many of our workers and the consequent high standard of living, this is the trick. Basically, every damn reality TV show on. We are nevertheless ruled by wealth, monopoly, and big business organization to an astounding degree. Our railway transportation is built upon monumental economic injustice to both passengers, shippers, and the different sections of the land. The monopoly of land and natural resources throughout the United States, both in cities and farming districts, is a disgraceful aftermath to the vast land heritage with which this nation started. And then he goes on. He said, let us establish these facts more carefully. Now, he didn't go. I'm skipping over whole paragraphs. You got to read this for yourself. He says, this is what Du Bois comes in. He says, the United States was always professed to be a democracy. She has never wholly attained her ideal, but slowly she has approached it. The privilege of voting has in time been widened by abolishing limitations of birth, religion, and lack of property. After the Civil War, which abolished slavery, the nation, in gratitude to the black soldiers and laborers who helped win that war, sought to admit to the suffrage all persons without distinction of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. They were warned by the great leaders of abolition, like Sumner Stevens Douglas, that this could only be effective if the freedmen's were given schools, land, and some minimum of capital. Then he talks about the betrayal. Let me fast forward to page nine. I'm going to end with this. A couple more quotes I want to go to. I know we got, I'm right up against the clock, so I want to make sure. He says, that these difficulties of capital is exactly what threatens the Negro the United States today because of the unjust disfranchisement of the Negro and the use of his numerical presence to increase the political power of his enemies and the enemies of democracy. The nation has not the courage to eliminate from citizenship all persons of Negro descent and thus try to restore slavery. It therefore makes its democracy unworkable by paradox and contradiction. Go back. Look at this poetry. This is the thing that hits the nation has not the courage to eliminate from citizenship all persons of Negro descent and thus try to restore slavery. Courage? That would be courageous? Yeah, because if they was telling the truth, they don't want your ass voting. They don't need you to vote. You cosplay coal miner from West Virginia, Joe Manchin? West Virginia was one of the five lowest states in voter turnout in the federal election of 2020. Joe Manchin don't want nobody voting. That's why he can run around here and, and block a whole damn agenda. If you don't vote, Joe Man, the people who own Joe Manchin's ass, draws, hair, glasses, and all, they win. <laughs> du Bois is trying to tell y'all 
they don't want none of y'all poor people voting, and especially you Negroes. He said, but they don't have the courage to try to return the blacks to slavery. It therefore makes its democracy unworkable. Unworkable by paradox. Hold on. I thought 51 beat 49. It does. So what's this filibuster? Is that in the rules? Well, we made that rule up back to keep uh, civil rights. as the, So you can just get rid of it, right? Well, technically, yes. But well, why won't you just get rid of it? Well, I mean, you know, it's an institution. Well, damn. Wait a minute. This is a paradox and confuse and contradiction. Joe, why is your ass standing up in front of Martin Luther King statue talking about we all are together? That's a contradiction. And Kamala, come here. What are you talking about? Do voices like, why y'all be believing these politicians are y'all friends? I spent 95 damn years trying to tell y'all that they're not your friends. Okay, let me let me see here. Page 13. Hold on, page 13. The appeal to the world. He says, this paradox and contradiction enters into our actions, thoughts, and plans. After the First World War, we were alienated from the proposed League of Nations because of sympathy for imperialism and because of race antipathy to Japan. In other words, y'all wouldn't join Woodrow Wilson. Y'all wouldn't join the League of Nations straight up because you couldn't figure out how to build your empire using that. And because we objected to the compulsory projection of minor protection of minorities in Europe, which might lead to similar demands upon the United States. In other words, y'all want to run white supremacy. And you know, Wilson was racist. He said, we joined Great Britain in determined refusal to recognize equality of races and nations. Our tendency was toward isolation until we saw a chance to make inflated profits Hmm. which came upon the world. This effort of America to make profit out of the disaster in Europe was one of the causes of the depression of the 1930s. Pause. Now, how many times y'all in American history book, they explain to y'all why there was a great depression? Well, the banks failed and they ran on the banks in the dust bowl and, you know, and, and then I read of mice and men and then I saw Henry Fonda talking about wherever you are, there I am. And Joe, y'all watching that bullshit? Let's be clear. Du Bois then told y'all, you know where depression came from? Because them bankers saw a crack to go world empire. They overreached, the shit collapsed, and you took the L in Oklahoma. But you, you always trying to look at American history like there's not a world that impacts that. And finance capital is international. This is the important thing. He says, as the Second World War loomed, the federal government, despite the feelings of the mass of the people, followed the captains of industry into attitudes of sympathy toward both fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany. Y'all go check out Prescott Bush. Yes, that's George H.W. Bush's daddy. Yes, that's George W. Bush's granddaddy, senator from Connecticut. Nazi, hey, don't get involved. Everybody back up. In fact, if we're going to get involved, let's see some sell some arms. Y'all go look and read about Charles Lindbergh, y'all hero. Y'all go check your children down at the Air and Space Museum to look at the spirit of St. Louis. Y'all better go look at his fascist tendencies, his pro-Nazi tendencies. Du Bois writes, when the utter unreasonableness of fascist demands forced the United States in self-defense to enter the war, what happened? Then at last, the real feelings of the people were loosed. And we again found ourselves in the forefront of democratic progress. That's when you saw the crack and we migrated. We did this work. And that generation is the generation that led to the civil rights movement. So let me end. The, page 16. He's only 17 pages. Really, 16 pages. Page 16. He says, the UN surely will not forget the population of this group, black people, makes it the size 
in size one of the most considerable nations of the world. We number as many as the inhabitants of Argentina or Czechoslovakia or the whole of Scandinavia, including Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. He's talking about black people in the United States. We are very nearly the size of Egypt, Romania, and Yugoslavia. We are larger than Canada, Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Hungary, or the Netherlands. We have twice as many people as Australia or Switzerland and more than the whole Union of South Africa. We have more people in Portugal or Peru, twice as many as Greece and nearly as many as Turkey. We have more people far by far than Belgium and half as many as Spain in sheer numbers then. We are a group which has a right to be heard. And while we rejoice that other smaller nations can stand and make their wants known in the United Nations, we maintain equally that our voice should not be suppressed or ignored. October the 23rd, 1947, Du Bois's Appeal to the World, a 94-page document with all kinds of statistics and stuff backing this up. Four years before we charged genocide, and here we are in 2021, listening to the hillbilly horde scream about CRT, worrying about which official is in the White House without any clue that the key to our liberation domestically is to broaden our struggle internationally. And whether it be some young people on a college campus at a historically black college or Du Bois before the United Nations or us in Nubia and narrative, the thing is that the truth is the truth wherever it is. And while these white dudes can say the truth involves a violence of forgetting, our absolute lives depend on the truth, re relying on everybody saying their experience as they have experienced it. And nobody tell them to be quiet because the draws ain't clean or you try to be respectable or respectable or you got a mortgage or $100,000 in the bank. And so therefore, you don't, it don't hit you the same way it hits this person who ain't got nowhere to stay, who can't afford the dorm room, who can't afford the meal plan, or is sitting out there like the vast majority of our people that will never see the inside of a university looking at the whole thing, like what the hell are they fighting about? Because <laughs> I, I can't even go to school. Let's study this document. I just hit some of the highlights. It's a whole lot more to it. But anyway, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> As you as you're talking, I, I'm hearing this in my head. This song. I can't. Can you hear it? Now I can. Yes. Oh. That's that cultural meaning making. Yeah, we ah. we can do all of these things. And do and, all of them. You know, the fact that this man took a case to the UN in the 40s. At the beginning of the UN. Like and, I was there, no problem. Let's yeah, go. Let's go. This is what y'all built this for. Come right. on. And and that we sit here today in a similar condition, you know. Yeah, there's been progress. You know, there's been progress, but you know, we can do so much more. And I, I just am so grateful that you inspire us every single week mm. in between the in between Saturdays as well, mm. uh, to remember who we are, 
that that we are greater than this. We we are better than this. This country may not be, but we are. So let's let's. Walk and and if you want to live in America and make America great, drop the again. That's fantasy. <laughs> and if you want to make America great, then realize that everybody's life is precious. You know, it's so funny, Prof. I was looking at uh, um, Charlie Rose, the now disgraced Charlie Rose, um, who used to have at that table so many different people. There was one time he had Kwame Ture, our brother, Stokely Carmichael, one time Stokely Carmichael, and Elaine Brown. This is just after Elaine Brown's book. Together. Together. Mm -hmm. They were there at the table, right, talking. And Charlie Rose being his usual condescending self, which, like William F. Buckley, plays so much more beautifully. I love to watch it. Because white ignorance, when it thinks it knows something, whether it be William F. Buckley or Charlie Rose, it's just wonderful to watch when you know how ignorant they are. And you don't, and Kwame Ture don't get upset, Lane Brown don't get upset. But they say, Charlie Rose says, well, you know, what would it take in this society to change everything? And, and then Lane Brown says, cut the defense budget 100%. And he was like, <laughs> you can't cut the defense budget. And then Kwame Ture was like, yeah, you could cut the defense budget. 100%. And, and then he said, Martin Luther King would say yes. If you cut the defense budget 100%, Martin Luther King would be happy. He would say yes. Charlie Rose says he would not say yes. Now, of the two of them, who knew Martin Luther King? <laughs> who was the high head that would blow up the meetings between Kwame Ture and Jesse Jackson? And when Jesse's case, because Jesse was with Martin Luther King, Martin King would make Jesse Jackson come sit next to him. You come sit next to me. Why? Because you can't be. But Kwame was like, no, nah, black power. You see them in the market. I knew Martin Luther King. I'm telling see what y'all don't like about Martin Luther King is he was anti-war. He said, Y'all got this defense budget, you could feed everybody. So they going back and forth. But Charlie Rose is with the flag, Elaine Brown and Kwame Ture. And Elaine Brown's still alive. Kwame Ture, mm -mm. you could feed everybody, cut the defense budget. And I'll never forget what Kwame Ture said about Colin Powell. He said, Well, you proud of Colin Powell? He said, Colin Powell's a killer. He said, You can't love Martin Luther King and love Colin Powell. Mm. And I'm like, ooh. Now, that's not saying Colin Powell is a bad guy. Look, I'm not talking, we're not talking about distinguished career in the military. We're talking about a principle. If you're against killing, you're against killing. He said, what did you want? What did you expect him to do? He could have done anything he wanted. I'm not, I'm not critiquing the brother. He's an ancestor. Go on, you know, become a powerful ancestor. But the point Kwame Ture and Elaine Brown were making is that if you want a different society, in fact, Elaine Brown said it. That's why I am. Elaine Brown said this. She said, this isn't a matter of resources. It's a matter of will. It's a matter of will. We can do it. We have to do it. I'm watching those children, hmm, not children. I'm watching those young people in those tents in front of Blackburn and the ones inside. While the people they go to class with for swag surfing, I ain't mad at those children. They came to college for that. I'm not mad at any of them. But I'm understanding that when those young people achieve this 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 infusion of resources, this transformation. Guess who benefits? Every person who will ever come to that institution. So yeah, and then and then all the people who ain't saying nothing, which y'all hear, because I know some of y'all silent. Watch this. Your child will benefit too. You don't have to be shamed, but what you also better not do is let the, any harm follow those children. That's why I'm going back up there today. You can't, you gotta, you gotta surround, we gotta surround those. You gotta surround those. Right. Anyway. We'll see you on campus with your Nubia uh, sweatshirt. Oh, no, you already, no question, you already know. We'll see you at Nubia on Monday. And I wanna say thank you again, Dr. Carr, 85 in the can. 85 in uh, the can. Thank we'll you. We'll see y'all in them Nubian streets. Love you. Love you too. All right. See